Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again with the man himself, Adam Chemaluski. Chema, how are we today, my man? Dude, I am feeling pretty fucking good, man. As I told you off uh, off air and stuff, I'm having a really good week. My one buddy's uh, coming in town tomorrow. We're going to go to the Browns game and got a good amount of shenanigans coming up for this weekend. So, dude, I'm fucking happy. Really excited to get into this uh, this episode for sure. I'm, I am stoked as well. Uh, stoked for you to go. Yeah, you, you got to give you got to give me the whole uh, breakdown of SoFi Stadium, um, which. Which in in certain shots, whenever they do like the the long shots of the stadium, it looks mm-hmm. kind of like a UFO sat down in the middle of Los Angeles. Oh, when you drive by it from the highway, that's exactly what it looks like. This um this structure is the biggest. Like there's the Forum, which is also really big, doesn't even compare in size to the size of SoFi Stadium. And when you drive by it on um on the 105, which is by our house, you look over to the left and like. Honest to God, it looks like a UFO that has just decided to commandeer the neighborhood in Inglewood for a while, like District Nine. Mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> excellent comparison. I mean, it, yeah. like it's it's more. I mean, its footprint is enormous, but it's like it's more than a stadium. It's there's like a ton of shit that's going along with it. Um, yeah. All the all the NFL production offices are there. There's like shopping. Like there's a ton of shit that is yeah. that is there. But nonetheless, it's still massive. Yeah, I am really excited to go check this thing out. Um, mainly because of all this um, kind of online, you know, uproar that happened on Monday night because of the cancel, the postponement of the game because of the <laughs> lightning, lightning storm. What was that about, dude? For starters, it was nuts. Like we're talking an Ohio-like storm in Southern California, which happens, but this is like the first one that's happened in a really long time. Like we had some like little you know spouts of rain, but this was the first major like colossal lightning storm in, in los angeles county they had one in uh, san diego a couple of weeks ago i think the padres game and a festival in orange county got postponed because of the lightning but it's the first one in, in la twitter erupted like like it's like it usually does whenever earthquakes and stuff like that happen out here but i was trying to figure out what's going on and it's like i thought this was a dome but and like when you when i seen footage of it it looks like part of it looked outside but i just couldn't quite figure it out turns out like it's like a canopy type thing. It's not completely enclosed. So I am really interested to check this out. Um, there's just a lo- there's a laundry list of things which I'll yeah, get into after I, I go to the game. I knew it was a canopy, but are they afraid lightning is going to take a fucking ninety degree U turn inside the stadium or something? So that's the thing I can't figure out. Like they they sure as hell didn't evacuate out anybody, and I believe the uh, the broadcast was still going on on ESPN. Oh yeah, there are people in the, the field. <laughs> like, yeah, so like. I, I don't quite understand that. I'm, I'm, I think that it's going to more than likely it'll probably result back to some incredibly fine print that's in like a zoning ordinance somewhere. But like, I was, I was just like, wow, like lightning could even fit. I mean, like I've seen photos, so it it doesn't look like a super big entranceway, but I'm like, lightning could even fit through there. Yeah, it was, that was, that was a real strange situation. And I don't know, like if, like if, if we've seen it before, like, being from the Midwest, we've seen like college and high school football games all the time. Storm hits, everyone gets they're like get out of you know get out of the seats, get into the concourse right now, um, right. in case of a lightning strike or something. But like if they were that worried about it, why why weren't people moved off the field or out of their seats? 
Yeah, I, that is the part that is like lost on me. So I, it is just one of those like I'm just chalking it up as a like okay, this happened. Like you know, hope now we know this kind of stuff can go down. Like you know, just sometimes in sports we learn maybe learn about a crazy rule or something like as the as because the Browns are about to be subject to it and lose a game or something. You know, so like I was just like I, this was just one of these things that like. I'm like, okay, this is how they do it now. So, all right, this is kind of new, kind of unusual, but um, if that's how it's going to be done, then that's how it's going to be done. I'm sure it'll be 20 years before it happens again. Yeah, that, that was the first time they've seen lightning, so they were very, uh, they didn't know what to do. They were just very afraid. <laughs> if you were to see the Twitter unfold that night, I guarantee you this is probably the first time a lot, you would think that, like this is the first time anybody's ever seen a lightning bolt other than what's on the Flash's chest, or <laughs> Thor. <laughs> or the Chargers uniform, for that matter. Yeah, the Chargers uniform, yeah, that's right, bolt up, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but uh, anyway, uh, sports talk with Adam Chuma is now over. We're gonna get back into our we're gonna get back into our regularly scheduled episode uh, for our 2021 Fright Fest um, season of the trilogy. Chuma, I'm really excited to do this. Um, but before we get into it, I have a lightning round question for you. What other lesser known region in the U.S. would be an interesting setting for a horror movie? All right, dude. This for me was a no brainer and. The Upper Peninsula of Michigan is ripe for like horror movie and a bunch of t- like it's ripe for so many goddamn mm-hmm. things in, in, in this kind of horror mystery thriller kind of genre. I mean, the setting alone, you have everything that you can need up there. You and we're talking like fall foliage, like that is like that is fucking fall up there, dude, with all the trees and stuff like mm-hmm. that. There's um a really long creepy bridge like who doesn't love long creepy bridges? There's islands up there like uh, not that many of them but there's islands up there and stuff in between the um the glove and the upper peninsula mm-hmm. and stuff. So like uh, you know God only knows what's on the island like who the hell's living there? Who's taking people to the island? The vacation party gone wrong? And like if you think about like all of these like um you know just like the some of the stuff that's on HBO like you know like the mayor of East Town or um or like it's like True Detective even though it's the South but it's that like you know this kind of small town mm-hmm. settings like that's like what it, that's like totally something that I the Upper Peninsula just seems to like um encapsulate all of those kinds of things just in its setting alone like there's mystery to it this would be like you know, kind of sort of like a great unknown for America. Not a lot of people go up there. It's still part of the country. I mean, it's woodsy. It's got everything. I I totally agree. I actually had a similar, um, I was kind of thinking about that when I was, when I was going through this question, I was thinking about kind of remote islands and things like that, that are, that are, um, you know, not remote, but like difficult to get to islands. And I know there's a bunch of, there's a bunch like that in between, um, in between the glove and the upper peninsula in Michigan. Um, this is a really excellent choice. Like there is, it feels, I mean, one, it is very far away. Like, even mm-hmm. though I can drive right now and be in Michigan in three hours, um, right. then to get to the Upper Peninsula, it's another, like, six hours of driving. Like, it's yeah. it's very, very, actually probably more than that. It's very far away, and it is one of those kind of, when, when people talk about the Upper Peninsula who are from Michigan, you know, who go visit in the summers or whatever, it is very insular. That, like, it has mm-hmm. its own, like, little culture there because they're so far away from everyone else in Michigan and, you know, everyone else really, period, in the country. Right, dude. You make a good point about how far it is. Like, three hours from where you are will take you almost to Detroit, you know? Right. And then, like, you're nowhere. Dude, you're not even anywhere near Tra- Traverse City and stuff like nope. that, which is, like, the one of the northwestern points of the globe, like, kind of like the ring finger. And uh, 
like it is just like one of these areas to me that like I, I number one I'm just like incredibly intrigued with like if I went up there for a weekend I granted I'd have my lifetime fill of the UP but but um like I just like I think that this whole area is just completely ripe for like a horror movie I could see like the introductory credits right now and the bridge and the waves and it looking all dark and stuff like I think it's perfect. Mm-hmm. There's there's a horror horror adjacent. Yeah, it's a horror. Yeah, horror thriller TV show um, that was on HBO called The Third Day. I don't okay. know. If you, I don't know if you watched that or not. With um, I have not. Who the fuck's in it? Um, Jude Law and like Naomi Harris are in it, and it's kind. It's this sort of. It's ve- something very similar. It's about this island uh, called OC Island. It's a real place. Um, it's mm-hmm. roadway during like high tide gets completely covered, so like you can't take cars and stuff on it. So like. Mm-hmm multiple times you know or like i guess like twice during during the day it's like completely cut off from the mainland of england and right. it has like its own like little like creepy culture that yeah of course of course I mean, it's a horror show so of course it has a creepy culture but so, some it's like that's exactly kind of like what i think you're pointing at is that kind of something like along those lines that's exactly like People that, like, if it was one of those movies, like, the two out-of-towners, a young, hip couple going up there, everybody up there is a complete contrast from the protagonists right. and right. stuff. Right. Exactly. I like it. I dig it. I dig it. Um, similar thought. Maybe not, like, lesser known, but certainly, well, not lesser known if you ever tune into the various, like, Discovery Show channels. But um, I would love to see something set in the Alaskan frontier. Um, oh yeah! This really it lends itself to a variety of horror movies. Um, first and foremost, those like nature survival horror movies. You know, where mm-hmm. like an, an animal is stalking and murdering them. Um, you know, it could could even be like a supernatural creature that is like out in the woods, and that kind of lends itself to like that sort of like folklore horror, um, a la like something like the Terror, where you have like an you know some kind of ancient entity that like lives in the forest out there killing people for trespassing, right. that kind of thing. Uh, psychological horror, you're talking about one of the most isolated places on the planet. Um, mm-hmm. You you can easily imagine someone living out in the woods going insane, and that being sort of like the, the base of your horror story. Um, similarly, you get like very unique extremes in, in that type of place. Obviously, like the the extreme cold, um, you know, the extreme the extreme swings in like heat to hot to cold. Uh, you know, something mm-hmm. like it's been 90 degrees in Alaska. Um, like that's not, of course, that's a that's a whole global warming thing, but that's not right. normal. But it's got some big extremes. And then you have, if you go far enough in, north into Alaska, into the frontier, then you'll get into the part where you eventually get north of the Arctic Circle, and you might have darkness for four months out of the year, or six right. months out of the year if you go really far north. Um, so like it's there's a whole bunch of sort of unique conditions that exist in this place. And this massive state that, like, really not very many people live in and not very many people have explored really fully, even to this point, that really could lend itself to an interesting variety of horror movies. Oh, dude, you totally got that right. And you're hitting on all the genres. Like, the isolation element alone is that's, like, worth the cost of admission and stuff. And if there are people, which I'm sure there are many of them, writing isolation horror movies, like, I think you're selling yourself short if you're not going the Alaskan Mm -hmm. route. And, Mm -hmm. And, like... We had these two friends out here. They actually just took a vacation up in Alaska like the last two weeks. And like, yeah, they were saying it was, you know, like it was on the warmer side. Um, They showed photos like it looked like fall in Ohio with mountains and stuff in the Mm -hmm. background, dude. Like, I mean, you're talking like the the leaves changing colors and like 
just these beautiful um, nature-esque kind of shots and stuff like that. That they it, it like trounces. Like I mean, we it, anything that's here in California, man. Like believe me, like if you're talking nature, like what is up there is just absolutely beautiful stuff that you could really, really tell a fucked up horror story in. Oh, absolutely. There's like, and, and this is like it's not it's not surprising, but like the least some of the least visited national parks in the u.s are in alaska because like mm-hmm. some of them you got to take like a fucking helicopter to get to or you got to take right. a, or the only way in is like taking like a boat like up the coast to get to it like there's they're so remote and like it's one of those things like it's one of those things that would be really awesome but also like what happens if something bad goes <laughs> like you yeah. get attacked by a bear in the wilderness like what do you do when the nearest help is going to be like two days away yeah, I know, right? That's when like your um second grade reading hatchet and stuff kind of survival in the woods things come to play like tear your clothes, make a splint, all that kind of stuff, right. you know. And I I know I wouldn't even I'm not even about to pretend like I would last the 2 days, but I would like to think that I would. <laughs> <laughs> possibly, possibly. But yeah, I, I like our, I like our choices. Uh the, the the UP in Michigan and uh the Alaskan frontier. Yeah. Um let's let's let hey, we got to get um I don't know. We'll call uh, we'll call it Blumhouse. See see what they can do with one of their movies. Yeah, God only knows they're making enough of them. <laughs> seriously, seriously, it's a fucking factory. But uh, but anyway, we are here. Uh, we are here in season of the trilogy to talk about uh, my selects. Um, I'm calling this the Red Flower trilogy. Um, these movies include, and I, I I will admit I went the basic bitch route um, when we were kind of putting these together. And I'll explain. I'll explain why I ended up choosing these particular movies. But um, the Red Flower trilogy, as I'm calling it, uh, it starts with Resolution uh, from 2012, Synchronic from 2019, and then it ends with the appropriately named The Endless uh, from 2017. All three movies are by uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, a directing duo. Um, you can kind of you can kind of break it down. I mean, they both direct, but if you really wanted to get their biggest responsibilities, um, Benson is Benson is more of the writer director, and Aaron Moorhead is more of the um, is well, he is the cinematographer. Um, if you mm-hmm. wanted to kind of split their duties up, um, but uh, I, I'll, I'll kind of I'll kind of skip to I'll skip down here for a little bit as to why a little bit of an explanation for why I chose this, and it actually chose it gets goes in place of something else. So. Okay. <clears throat> Originally, I I was gonna I plotted out this uh, body horror trilogy um, that was focused on the female body and how okay. and how um, how in horror movies especially like it's it's the sort of this messaging that women's bodies are disgusting that they're they're gross they're leaky they're whatever like they're they're out you know these women's bodies are like are hideous enough to get men basically okay. is where, where a lot of like female body horror comes in. And mm-hmm. it's really hasn't been until more recent times where they've kind of like tried to flip that on its head yeah. um, a little bit. And I was actually going to start with Benson and Moorhead's film Spring, uh, which okay. is a female centric body horror movie. Um, and it, it so, I, you know, I had these movies plotted out. And I'm like, this is this is this going to be pretty interesting, but it feels really obtuse and hilariously on point for two men to talk about women's bodies without a woman weighing in on the topic. Right, of course. That is true. Happening in Washington, D.C. every day. Right, exactly. So I was just like, you know what, there's... This just, like, as, as good as this would be, like, the fact that you and I would not... It, it would be kind of too late to just, like, try to rope in someone else we know that happens to be a woman and also kind of feels like very tokenism. Like, right, hey, right. we need a chick um, to talk about this, too. So right. instead, I was like, okay, so let's reverse course here. 
still like to talk about Benson and Moorhead stuff. And there's a different trilogy like waiting right there that I think is pretty interesting. Um, so what with resolution, synchronic and endless, as I said before, uh, I'll give you the quick, I'll give everyone out there the quick sort of um, rundown of each of these movies. Just a quick synopsis here, by the way, have you ever, Chem, have you ever like gone through and read some of like the synopsis on or synopses, I guess on IMDb where like people just basically type out the movie word for word. Yeah, you know, IMDb has got some really interesting synopses, um, if you, if I may. And there are some that are like three sentences that I don't even know if the people even watch the movie that they're describing. And then there are just these paragraphs. And like when I look at it on the app on my phone, it, it looks like somebody's making like a really long confessional Facebook post, you know, <laughs> where it's just like over and over and over and over again. And then like I finally get to the bottom of it and there's like still five more synopses to go. I was like, wow, they couldn't just take this one and maybe funnel it down and let's go with one agreed upon synopsis. Right. Exactly. Like I'm, I'm literally looking at one for resolution where it ends with it says end credits. And I'm like, though, that's you just told everyone what happens. Like, that's that's a little bit different than like a synopsis, but whatever, it doesn't really matter. So I'll give you the one of the better, shorter ones here for resolution. Uh, Soon to be dad, Michael makes a last ditch effort to save his longtime but addicted friend, Chris, from a foreseeable drug related death. Visiting Chris and handcuffing him to an exposed plumbing pipe, Michael forces his buddy into detox. But while watching over his friend, he also discovers that all is not right within the territory Chris has drifted into. Situated on an Indian reservation, the area seems to attract a number of strange people. Uh, someone or something has a long-time interest in recording activities in the area, all captured on a, on a variety of recording devices. Michael comes to understand he's been pulled into the latest story of an unseen entity, one with a grisly resolution projected for him and his pal, unless they can possibly work out their own agreeable alternate ending which is a much better synopsis than literally the story that was written below this. Um, that's Resolution. Uh, Synchronic is pretty sure this is much quicker. Uh, yeah. Two New Orleans paramedics' lives are ripped apart after they encounter a series of horrific deaths linked to a designer drug with bizarre otherworldly effects. And that would be the titular Synchronic is what they're encountering. And then finally, The Endless. I'll pull this up real quick. Um... <clears throat> Uh, the Endless follows two brothers who receive a cryptic video message, message inspiring them to revisit the UFO death cult they escaped a decade earlier. Hoping to find the closure that they couldn't as young men, they're forced to reconsider the cult's beliefs when confronted with an unexplainable phenomena surrounding the camp. As the members prepare for the, for, the coming for the coming of a mysterious event, the brothers race to unravel the seemingly impossible truth before their lives become permanently entangled with the cult. Um, and that's the endless. Um, so yeah, besides there being a, a basic bitch element to why I picked these, it's the same three, you know, the same directing duo for all three of these movies. Um, I also, Chum, I stuck these together. Here's like, besides that, here's like what really why I stuck these together and we won't get too deep into them just yet, but tell me if you agree or disagree on all these. Um, number one for me, the biggest thing that tied these together was the cinematography. Um, the, the look of all these movies is very unique and they have a very, they have a, that obvious shared visual DNA tells, tells its own specific story. Would you agree or disagree with that? I definitely agree. I'm interested to hear more on the, the DNA, um, half of that sentence and stuff. But when, in terms of the looks, you're, you're hitting everything a hundred percent, right? I mean okay. like resolution and, uh, the endless almost like they could have been shot like together. Right. Right. Um, another big thing here, this is more of a theme, uh, the difficulties of friendships. 
Uh, the duos in each movie are put to an extreme test, and they have to rely on each other and their friendship to survive the trauma. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yep, that is that is as clear as day. Yes, you got yeah. This one's a little bit more opaque, but like when we get into it, um, you'll you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I call this part or this other uh, sort of theme dispatches from beyond. Um, and I'll call this, I'll define this briefly as unique otherworldly communication and visions. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, yes. Like okay. That one, I, I agree with that all the way. That one's another very clear one, too. Okay, okay. All right. <clears throat> so there is, um, there is an order to these. Um, and I'll, I'll get into the, I'll get into the, um, the reason right now I picked, I picked it as resolution synchronic and the endless because I feel like those are a legitimate, I feel like especially resolution, and the endless are bookends. Um, yes. they're very much bookends. And as we get into it, you'll see that they're, they're very tightly related movies, but I feel like those were bookends to the same story. And I felt like synchronic felt like an example of sort of what would happen with some of the weird forces that we're dealing with in Resolution and the Endless. What if those things got out of um, out of the San Diego East County area, and like mm-hmm. what those kind of what that kind of force would look like someplace else? So it's sort of almost almost like um, almost like a, a movie that we're going to do later, Halloween Three. It almost feels like an anthology part of this other gotcha. of this of this story that has already been kind of put together. So I, I just feel like Synchronic is sort of like a, a, a it's it's a cousin basically to these other two that are definite bookends to the same story. Oh yes, without a doubt, dude. There's something about Synchronic being in the middle of those uh, two movies that I think it just naturally kind of fits. You know, the the way you described it as a cousin, a hundred percent on point there. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, it, again, when you're dealing with the same filmmakers who have a very specific style, things are going to look very much the same but considering mm-hmm. considering the budgets of the resolution and the endless and the star power be, uh, between synchronic and the other movies um it sets itself apart in a very different way but still retains a lot of ties to uh to those other movies so mm-hmm. um yeah so resolution synchronic and the endless is the order i had us watch these in uh let's jump right into it Chano, Chemo, what did you think of this trilogy choice Okay, dude. I thought that this trilogy choice was number one. It was very unique. I did not know that. I've heard of Synchronic, like just it was buried deep in the back of my mind somewhere, mainly because of my Jamie Doran man crush and everything. Mm-hmm. But I had I had never heard of Resolution or The Endless, and like I got to tell you that I feel that Resolution and Endless are almost like how we talked about with Canadian filmmaking, where it's just like really sucking the all of the all the life out of the situation that mm-hmm. you are given. And that is exactly like what I feel about those two movies. It is taking this situation and pumping it for all it's worth. And then when you get to the endless, you are getting all of these awesome and borderline Lindelofian kind of twists in the, um, in the story, like having Mm -hmm. um, Mike's wife just all of a sudden at the UFO death cult camp and stuff like that. And I'll I'll just, all these really fucking like cool kind of um, reintroductions of characters or like um, continuations of characters and stuff like that. And um, this was just one of these trilogies that um, I'm sort of surprised that I did not know about, but at the same time, um, I was very, very happy to discover this. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad I got to share this with you and, and talk with this one about you because I figured this would—I I figured this would be something that you would, between the two of us, we'd have a lot to hash out. 
And I, I actually love the comparison to the Canadian filmmakers that we talked about in our, in our Canada episode. That like mm-hmm. if you if you didn't know that Benson and Moorhead were both from California, would you not just assume that this is a Canadian movie or these were Canadian it does, movies? You know something, dude. And like, I'm just going to throw out a really crazy thought here, but like the way that resolution and the endless look in terms of the way they are shot teeters the way I feel Schitt's Creek is kind of shot. There's this, which we'll get into some of the cinematography mm. stuff when we get into it, but like. There is this certain kind of mutedness about the the sets, the designs, everything, like just the way that it's shot in general, that remind that mirrors Shit's Creek to me in a mm. very, very, very like farthest possible end of the spectrum kind of way. Gotcha, gotcha. That's very interesting, actually. I'm now I'm, I'm very excited to hear Chip say about that. So of these of these three movies, did you have a favorite? Okay, yeah, I th- you know, going back on it, Resolution is definitely my my favorite of the um, of the three. Like um, when I say this, I'm not taking anything away from the other two movies. It's just there are some things in Endless that, like, particularly towards the end, that I really, really fucking liked. And mm-hmm. the one thing about um, Resolution that I just totally respect the shit out of is I love these fucking movies where it is just like two people and like a dialogue fucking a dialogue frenzy. Mm -hmm. Now, now I will say like the dialogue that is in resolution versus the other two is definitely the most immature of the three. Sure. But when it comes, when I look at the situation and stuff and just, you know, a guy being a recovering addict, like I'm, I'm thinking that like, yes, there are going to be probably, way too many f-bombs in that situation compared to other situations it's just like when you when chris is like i mean there's just like so many fucking f-bombs in this thing i mean we're talking there has to be as many f-bombs as this as there are in like there are in pulp fiction oh probably it's a lot it's a lot you know and like believe me like i get it for the situation but there's just something as like an observer that it almost kind of felt like it was a little thick with the F-bombs, which took away from some of the other dialogue that was going on where it's just like, you know, Chris maybe just kind of reiterating something with an F-bomb over and over again. But um, I happen to absolutely respect that that's the route that they took. We were in the cabin, like, or um, in that area, we were in basically in scenes where there were conversations between no more than two people for like 90% of the movie and stuff. And, there's something about that that I just like I love and respect the shit out of that. Like that's those are the kind of scripts that like I want to write, even though like, you know, my writers group in Hollywood may not agree with that. <laughs> but um, I just I've always been a fan of it. I have been a fan of it since the early 2000s um, when I saw Ethan Hawke in this movie tape. It's an old Stephen Belber play, you know, just three people. And the subject matter is a little crazy, but like, I respected that, too. I respected it now. And the one thing when I go back to the end is that the scene the shot of the two of them just looking up and we never actually see what they're looking at like that was just one of the things that made me want to power through the rest of the trilogy as i watched it all in one night mm-hmm. I, it very very well said um and i'll, I'll add on to it here because i resolution is actually my favorite too of these and again like you said not, not to take away from the other two because they all have their own they all have like their own great points um but like you know this is this is their this is their first feature, right? This is Benson and Moorhead's first feature, and it you're right, like it it shows in some of the immaturity of the dialogue and some of the there's some there are some shots and things that are fairly simplistic, but like they they took 
they took those things that they had working against them and turned them into strengths. Like the scenes mm-hmm. where they're just in the cabin talking. And they maximize those interactions between Chris and Mike. They maximize the what little technical stuff they could do to pull off the special effects are mm-hmm. pulled off to absolute perfection. I don't yeah. I don't know that increasing their budget would have made those things better. Um, it, it, actually, I don't think it would have made them better. Um, what they did with what they did with how the the entity communicates with them is like it's just sort of it's necessity, you know, it's mm-hmm. a budgetary necessity, but it's still like brilliant the way they pulled it off. Yeah, definitely. Like I'm I'm convinced that like a majority of the of the movie went to that last little bit. Like the whole thing with that dude getting his face fucking shot through. Like mm-hmm. that ha- that and the fire stuff had to be like a, a majority of the budget. Probably was. It pro- I can almost guarantee you that it, that it was. So yeah, like yeah. So I think we're in agreement here. Uh, resolution, my favorite as well. Like I I I think the endless ranks second for me, and then mm-hmm. I, I put synchronic third. Um, but you can. It's one of those things that you can tell from the progression of these movies. When you have when you have um, Peter Salella and Vinnie Curry in resolution delivering lines, who are totally fine actors, by the way. There's absolutely nothing wrong with their performances at all. Um, mm-hmm. Versus Anthony Mackie and Jamie, Jamie Dornan delivering lines, like you you they hit a different way. They just hit right. a different way. Um, so when you see that progression, you can kind of see like how much more sophisticated their filmmaking has become. But like, it's still, again, I guess it's just sort of one of those things that makes what makes resolution so great is even though you're talking about more, I mean, they're pro they're professional actors, but they're indie movie actors. They're more amateur actors um, still deliver a really great performance in a movie that holds its own against something that has uh, a Marvel person and the guy from 50 shades of gray in it. Right. Right. Oh yeah. Acting wise, for those two dudes, they definitely hold their own. And I got to say, I'm going to give a big shout out here to Zan McClarnon showing up in that movie. Zach that McClarnon. Was very... Zach. Okay, Zach. It's Z... okay, it's Z-A-H-N on IMDb. I just mispronounced oh, I thought it was, I always thought it was Zach. I used it in Westworld. Um, that's, why, that's where I know him from. Yeah, like I say, Westworld and um, the first season of Fargo and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like he's in Reservation Dogs too, which, if you um, need, which I enjoy. If you need an Indian actor, an American Indian actor, do you, do you find this guy? Yeah, exactly. And like I having him show up in the movie, even though like he was integral to the story and stuff. And he had this like really abbreviated one to two sentence way of speaking. Like, I really like that guy. And I thought it was awesome that he that he showed up in uh, resolution. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, there's like a lot of these a lot of the actors, and actually mostly when you shift to the endless, you've seen a lot of these actors in, in places and in things. Like, mm-hmm. even if you're not recognizing them right away, like, you've probably seen um, the guy who played Hal in The Endless, uh, like, the, the leader of the camp, or the de facto leader of the camp. That dude's in, like, a hundred fucking commercials. Like, right. he's in everything. You, you just, you don't realize it until, like, you actually, like, look at him. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's actually, uh, oh, no, let's, sorry, I was going to say skip that. But, um, uh, so, I, you know, obviously I'm going to get into the, the connections and patterns of things in more detail, but... What were some of the things that you picked up on that that jumped from each from movie to movie? Okay, so basically to start off with the most simplistic one, the the idea of the red flower, which is a phenomenal name for this trilogy, I might add. The okay. red flower is a um a you know a reoccurring kind of motif that reoccurs throughout the trilogy, not necessarily reoccurring in um, each movie. I believe it only reoccurs in the endless, where uh, the, the, uh, literally the, it, two two moments and really mostly the very end. 
Yeah, exactly. So like the um the red flower just being the, the reoccurring motif throughout the um throughout the trilogy, hence why the trilogy has its name. Um okay, so one uh, these are some just some really crazy ones. So sure. like the Eastern Diamondback rattlesnake appears in um Synchronic and then it also appears in The Endless. There's a snake mm-hmm. that's in the the woods and stuff like that in then Endless. So um that uh I guess reoccurring, you know, plot device um, makes a makes multiple appearances there. Uh, drugs is something that is completely apparent throughout yep. each movie, um, and even like you know, I I, will, I don't necessarily like even though it technically is, but we don't view alcohol so much as a drug. But this cult and drinking this amazing Grolsch and stuff like that that they had was, um, you know, like like my this is the drug for. Um, for the the endless and stuff like it, a physical, it feels like drug it, and it kind of feels almost like to me like a little bit of a call to to like the um uh whatever jim's jones jim jones's cult was uh i can't remember the name of yeah. his cult it kind of right. has like that sort of feel to it like drinking you know drinking the juice or whatever um these yeah, people are all the drinking the beer. drinking the cool you bet yeah. dude yeah, the whole, oh yeah, that is a really good um, comparison there for sure. It's almost like every cult needs like something that they that's the same that they eat or drink. You know, it's just kind of that drinking Kool Aid being such a prominent reference to right. uh, cult history and stuff. Right. Uh, okay, so one interesting one is um, rundown or not all that nice settings. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and I feel that um, these can be interpreted as like a character's life being in shambles. Like it's Chris's cabin, the city of new Orleans, like the parts that they go to and stuff. Um, like, you know, are, During are the not, parts. yeah, exactly. You're not going to like bourbon street and stuff like that. You know, you were in like a, a park and like this, um, really rundown house that had these crazy like voodoo people in it. So these settings could, um, represent some kind of like, you know, um, some kind of like a conflict within the the characters and stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. and like the cult thing isn't necessarily nice. So I'm just going to throw that in, into this category as well as well and stuff too. Um, then, uh, the last one that I have, which I've actually, like I saved this one for last because I'm really interested to know your thoughts on it is, um, if the idea of, well, I know that its name is Mike Danube, but I've always Mm -hmm. pronounced it the Danube. It gets like in resolution. It gets pronounced both ways. Okay, it does. Okay. Yeah, the the, so, the tweakers, the tweakers, Billy and Micah. Billy pronounces it mm-hmm. Danub, and then I think when he when he first, I think when Chris, or Mike first shows up, he says Danube. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Definitely. So like I, I've always pronounced it as, as Danube, like same here, the, the the river and stuff like yeah. that. So it's so he th- th- is in both movies, and then Steve's last name is Danube, or he has it on his um his uh jacket like his um and his paramedic jacket and everything so me noticing this leads me to believe that there is some type of thing with the danube or the danube that they're they're trying to say and like unfortunately there's not really much into it like it's there's like a it comes from danu which is like a indo-european language it's like a god figure but it's like the god of like a of like a water, so I, I can't. That would still like, make a god my, figure would still make sense though. Okay, yeah, a god figure definitely making sense. Yes, so I thought that this name might be some type of thing that they purposely inserted in there for symbolism. Oh, I I don't doubt that at all. Like, and it's weird. I actually didn't notice that until the second time I until the second time I watched Synchronic, because like he's mm-hmm. um, Mackie's character is just listed as Steve. 
and Dennis is just, or, you know, Jamie Dornan is just listed as Dennis if you go through the IMDb credits. Um, and, yeah. and Danube is spelled a little bit differently. Um, I think mm-hmm. the, I, I think it begins with an E instead of an A in Synchronic. But, like, okay. I, I do not doubt that that is intentional. So they, um, the, the order, like, if you were to go through um, Benson and Moorhead's movies in order, not for any particular trilogy purposes, it would be Resolution, and then their second movie is Spring, and then, um, well, then they do some other, like, they do, like, a, a portion of, they do, like, a, a VHS, uh, of the VHS movies, they do, they have, like, one part of the uh, anthology in the VHS movies, mm-hmm. and then you get to The Endless. And it wasn't until after they made Spring that they, that they had the idea to make their own sort of, um, I, I call it their own cinematic universe, basically. Their indie, okay. indie horror cinematic universe. It wasn't until they made The Endless that they kind of decided to go that route because there's nothing in spring that would tie you to um, there's nothing in spring that would tie you to any of the other movies. Um, mm-hmm. But they actually do mention in the endless, they actually mention a person who goes away to Italy and never comes back. And that's okay. their friend from that's what it's, it's like Shane's or Hal's friend or something from, uh, from spring is oh, the main okay. character from that movie. Um, so like it's, that's sort of retconning it, but they decided when they made the endless, like let's just tie all these together in some way, shape or form. Because why not? Like, it'd be kind of fun to do it. Like, we didn't have any plans to do it, but why not? Um, mm-hmm. I call it, I call this, I call it the East County Cinematic Universe. Uh, the East County okay. of San Diego. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, the fact that, the fact that Steve and Mike share the same last name, or at least very similar last names, and you pointed to this river and, and this deity, that does not, that's, I, I feel like that's a very intentional thing that Benson wrote in. Yeah, it, it almost it does feel very very intentional. The 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 issue that I found, but I mean I had to bring this up because I noticed it. But like the issue that I found in my own like thought process was um, this god is being like a water figure, and it's like you have they go to a park where there's water in um, synchronic, but there's no there's no like overt kind of motif or like head nod or statement about water. Like it's not Chinatown, it's not the Grudge. So there's like because it doesn't have that like you know um like you just like whatever encompassing shot of water that's the kind of thing that was my issue in my logic process um so like i'm i'm looking up uh Danu right now on mythopedia so take this with um, <laughs> i mean it, it actually i mean it has like a ton of yeah, like, that's that's where i went oh I went okay the same site <laughs> yeah. so it, it also it, it it also it doesn't just mean river it also means to flow and what's one of the big keys through all these movies time time the the flow the flow of time yeah oh yeah do i have that in my notes yes i do fuck okay. i had that in my notes yeah, oh, okay. yeah there I, you go yeah that, yeah i went to that site that's exactly where i got that from i oh, was okay, trying to gotcha. find something else other than water and that was the one thing and i was like all right this is it yeah so there you go like it, it i mean that you're right that is something that is not an accident they didn't just go like oh well mike was Danube, so why don't we name steve Danube and just spell it differently <laughs> right right of course right definitely um, so love those. How about a couple other things here? Um, one, like one of the most obvious ones, the, the sort of the intersection of physics and magic is, is pretty, is pretty strong throughout all of them. Like that, that especially like when we get to the end list and we see the equation on, um, on Hal's board, that is for him, this sort of like answer that he's been trying to get to for who knows how long. Um, right. uh, but like, and it's sort of like emblematic of this idea that like, there's a point where there's a point where like science and the unknown are they're basically indistinguishable from each other, right? Like we just mm-hmm. who cares about what it is? It's just something we right. don't we don't know anything about. 
Um, uh, there's also some little visual things that pop up a lot. Um, I, I don't know if you caught uh, when Steve travels back to looks to be like the early 1800s Louisiana in Synchronic. Um, I don't know if you caught like the the well. Uh, there's a religious cult. How about that? We start off with that. Um, right. But um, you know, it's a religious cult of like these uh, presumably, I would guess, freed or like escaped black slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know? Did you notice what the leader was holding? It was. Um, it's the same. It's a like a scepter type thing that I believe makes a reappearance in. It makes an appearance in all three movies, right? It's outside of it's the walking stick that the guy was walking with, right? Who is Sarah's owner, the dog's owner? Uh, well, uh, no. Um, but okay. Sorry, I yeah, thought, it I is. No, no, it. it is. It's in the endless. It's those are the little totems that contain all the time bubbles. That's okay. Okay, I gotcha. Okay, yeah, those are right. the little totems yeah. that, that contain all the time bubbles. And in that scene too, we get twin moons as well. Oh yes, that's right. Okay, yes, definitely, that's right. We get those twin moons. You kind of picked up on everything else that I had too. That was you know that like just sort of popped up, but I'm sure there's more things. Like I'm very certain there's more things that sort of uh, that sort of overlap. But like I'm glad that we you you picked up on the big ones, and I got a couple of extra ones here too. Um, so what do you what do you think your what would you say is your standout character from each movie? Okay, so uh, from Resolution, the standout character to me is Chris. Like yeah. this guy, uh, number one, like owned the stage and stuff. And I, I did, you know, those comments about the dialogue and stuff that I made, like, you know, we'll just cast those aside for right now because as a presence driven character that really made me buy into all of this, like addiction stuff, he did a really, really great job. He hit on all of the classic, like kind of addiction type points or to moments and stuff like, you know, asking like to kill him and, you know, just leave me. This is awful. Like I actually believed that he was like going through that stuff. There was nothing like shitty about that performance at all. No, I, I I'm 100% with you here. Um, Vinnie Curran does more acting from a fucking bed from a dilapidated <laughs> right. mattress than, than a lot of actors do um, in any, in any, in any given movie. Like it was, are we talking we're not talking like he's gonna you know he should win a, he should have won awards or anything for this but like that is a believable performance of someone in the throes of detox and recovery and the mm-hmm. fact that he has to do it 95 percent of it on the floor handcuffed is pretty right. fucking it's it's pretty intense the performance that he gives yeah and he's like the really really great contrast to the mike character not just in terms of the sobriety and the um like being addicted to drugs just in terms of like Mike being like on the quiet, flatter, but more determined, more focused side. And this guy is like the, the more of the show, but his life is a fucking mess. Mm-hmm. Like it was a really excellent contrast between the two. Excellent contrast. And Chris provides some legitimate moments of levity and humor too. Like mm-hmm. he does, he gets his, he gets his moments to be very funny. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. There were some funny moments in there. That's for sure. And like, mm-hmm. I, I really just loved how, you know, underneath it all, they were still friends and they had this like, I don't know, man, I guess I'm just maybe as I get older, I'm just becoming more and more of a sucker of like these, you know, what end up being throughout the entire movie, probably like seven to 10 minutes of dialogue. But it's just like, you know, they're talking about the situation in front of them and he's all on crack and just trying to get sober. But they have enough time to like make fun of each other for all the women that they hooked up with Mm -hmm. and everything like those little like. I guess moments of genuineness um, are 
these bright spots in a relatively dark story, but it's good to have those. Yeah, you, you need them. You need them otherwise, like, you'd need them otherwise it just becomes too bleak. Um, yeah, like Depressor Fest. Yeah, exactly, which I think, you know, there's room for that. Um, you know, there's there's definitely room for that in movies, but I think, I think Resolution would have suffered greatly if there weren't moments of humor because then I wouldn't really buy them as friends, as longtime friends. Right, exactly. And those moments of humor, I feel, gave us what we needed to buy into the friendship element. Like, why this dude would just all of a sudden, like, take a week out of his life to go sit in the cabin and make sure this guy gets sober. And take it really seriously, no yeah. less. This guy took the sobriety process really seriously. I mean, so, he, did, um, he did handcuff him to, to a wall, so... Yeah. Right. Um, he did kidnap him. But yeah, no, you're right, you're right. Like, it's... Those are the those are the kind of touches that like make the friendship believable and make the the whole mission, whole Mike's whole mm-hmm. mission believable too. I totally yeah, agree. Definitely. With you. definitely. Um, the, how about from Synchronic? Okay, so for Synchronic, this is the the more basic answer of the three. This is Steve. Like I really liked Anthony Mackie in this role. How, how could like, it, how could it not be Steve? I know he's it's, it's fucking great, dude. There's the character is very very layered. The uh, the cancer. The, the, the drinking, this kind of outlook on life, but still taking up this journey to go save his best friend's daughter and stuff. Like, he don't have to fucking do this shit, you know? But, um, but he does it. And, like, the thing that I love the most about this movie, it was just the sequences where he's doing the thing with the board and the camera and mm-hmm. the rules. Like, there, there are some people out there that may be like, oh, you know, like uh, – you should just figure it out or something should just be implied for me. I want to know that's how every fucking situation should be explained in every single movie is with a, with a whiteboard (laughs) and like writing and stuff, you know? And like the fact that they did that and they kind of showed his trials and tribulation, you understood like there was like a a little bit of like a clock element to it. You know, he had only so many pills that he could take. Mm -hmm. And like, I just like, I thought that this was just like all around, like one of the better Anthony Mackie performances that I've seen. And I, I've only seen him in obviously like the Marvel stuff and maybe one other thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. No, I mean, yeah. Mackie, Mackie's really good in this movie. And not only that, it's like really hard to pick out anyone else. Like Mm -hmm. this is, this is, this movie is about Steve. What right. do, do you really get down to? And I know, I know Jamie Doran has some has some moments by himself. Um, you know, just thinking about that, like one scene in particular with uh, his daughter, played by uh, Ali Ionides. Um, like there, you know, he like Jamie Doran for sure gets this moment. But this is Steve's fucking movie, uh, top to bottom. Mm-hmm. And but you're you're right. Like the whole well, they set it up early. Like when we when we get when we get this when we get the the speech that Steve gives to the uh, to the stabbing victim. Um, about mm-hmm. Einstein's letter and how Steve is a, an armchair, um, an armchair physicist that, you know, he's, he's into the concepts, maybe not the math necessarily. Right. He's into the concepts and the ideas. So like, yep. we know that we're going to get a scene later on where like he gets to be an armchair physicist and like mm-hmm. break things down. So like, it's, even though it's like we, you and I always complain about like how, like sometimes movies are exposition dumps. Well, like mm-hmm. they set up an exposition dump in a way that like makes perfect sense. That like right. it's it's he's doing this for posterity's sake to tell to tell um, uh, Dennis in case something goes wrong or to tell anyone in case something goes wrong like exactly what happened and what he did and to set up right. like a blueprints for it but also for us to go to take that conversation that he had with the doctor or the chemist mm-hmm. I guess um, about like the you know the needle jumping across uh, across the record and that's like how time like it's a very abstract way but now we get very 
we actually get concrete experiments to show exactly what the doctor or the chemist meant. Right. And dude, like, I'm going to tell you, like, the good, one of the great things about the way that they did this, and you make a great point about like us and like just too much exposition sometimes, but, and, and we're, we're, and you and I are a hundred percent right on that. Like one thing that makes this so great is that it takes away any kind of like deus ex machina thing, like something that he overlooked in the process that gives him an advantage at the end, you know, like mm -hmm. we got everything like there, all the guidelines were established. You know, there wasn't like just all of a sudden some pill that he had in his jeans pocket that he threw in the wash a couple weeks ago. You know, there wasn't anything like that. Like everything, the, the situation was there. It was clear. And like, we get to see the, the character work through the situation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The only thing that you can kind of consider a, a deus ex machina um, or, you know, very convenient writing is the fact that Steve just happens to have that tumor that mm -hmm. keeps his pineal gland from being um, calcified. Um, yeah. A little too convenient, but whatever. Like, this is one of those, it's one of those explanations for things that, like, I don't care because I'm more interested in in the payoff for what's going to happen than for a logical explanation for the reason that happens. Yeah, that is such a small, like, thing. You're right. It, that is definitely convenient, but it's it's so small that that is going to get washed away in everything so fast. Like, I don't know that much about the pineal, uh, pineal gland. So like the, um, those kinds of languages and everything like that, like, you know, they're, they're in my head, but at the same time, they're washed away as soon as like something cool happens. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All I know is that Steve is able to travel back in time. And, right, exactly. and yeah. I know that that's going to pay off in, and it does in both an emotional and very interesting sort of um, time loopy kind of way. So who cares? The reason why it doesn't really matter. He can do it. That's all that matters. Right. It's it's not as like a super convenient thing as there would be in like a shitty rom-com or something like exactly. that. The, con the convenience factor is very, very low on the terms of like uh, relation to the story. Exactly. Other movies. Because it's, it's not so – it's very heavily implied that – Steve, in fact, dies in the past. So, like, it, right. it, like, it doesn't... I mean, it turns out... The story, I guess, it turns out well for, you know, the overall story. But, like, yeah, his Steve's condition, it still kills him in the end anyway. So, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so, how about uh, standout character from The Endless? I think, I think you had some choices here. More choices than the yeah. other two movies. You definitely have more choices. That is for sure. And for me, I went with Hal... Hal was the only character that really had any sort of mystery to him to me. Mm -hmm. um, like the the two brothers and stuff like that were, were did their jobs and they played those parts really really good and mm -hmm. stuff, you know. And like there are these things like especially like in writing where you're like, oh, you know, the characters never supposed to say what's exactly on their mind. Well, guess what? Those two fucking guys did the whole goddamn movie and it still works. So suck yeah. it, every screenwriting book known to man. <laughs> However. The um, the thing you know, and I'm not believe me, like th that doesn't necessarily take away from their intrigue or anything for our for the purpose of our discussion. But I do think that like if I was to rank everybody out, Hal is definitely by far and away the most intriguing character for reasons beyond just you know like um, or sorry for like he's number one, and I'm not taking away the dialogue is like oh my god that stopped them from being the number one mm -hmm. um, on my list. But, like, he was this dude, and, like, I guess with all of these kind of cult leaders, they're usually the most interesting character in the movie. And, like, the entire time, I was still kind of wondering, like, 
if they were this UFO death cult, like I didn't really get any like real clarity on that until much later on in the movie, which, um, which, which, which really, really worked, um, you know, just in general, I mm-hmm. thought really, really worked. But, um, the cool thing about this guy is he just, it's a really docile looking dude. There's really not any kind of like evil, like anything about him. You know, he looks like very, very innocent and stuff. He shaved that beard. That dude could easily be like in a high school and stuff somewhere. Just a really mm-hmm. young looking kind of guy. And he is this really young kind of docile looking dude. But however, if, um, if Justin is right, this guy is like a real fucking problem, you know, and he, and there's this really thin line that he walked from, you know, I guess being like very docile to almost like kind of sinister and stuff. And like the sinisterness, we only got little glimpses of, but when we did, it provided these really awesome, again, contrast to like what we had saw before, which just amped up the layered and the mystique of the character. I, I am first off in 100% agreement, agreement with you here that it's Hal. Um, again, like our main characters who are in this case played by the filmmakers, Benson and Moorhead, um, they do, you're right. They do their job. Like they, they get us as the audience to the conflict basically. Um, and then they let, I think, I think in this case, in the endless, it's a lot of characters have like some pretty good moments. Um, Mm -hmm. and they do a very good job of just getting us to those moments, those characters. And Hal really stands out to me, uh, played by Tate Ellington, um, Hal really stands out because he you're right he has like this interesting like high wire act where he's like he's gatekeeping these secrets of what the fuck is going on but also Mm -hmm. not like tipping his hand to Aaron and Justin to let them know everything because because one it it would just be too hard of a pill to swallow right away right but Mm -hmm. also as as sort of the de facto leader of as we find out not really a cult um, I mean, it is, but it isn't. I mean, I guess you could identify a lot of things as a cult, but right. But sort of, let's just call it a commune. That's because Aaron calls it a commune, and that's probably significantly more accurate. Um, as it's sort of the de facto leader of the commune, though, you do you're trying to sort of, I guess, re-recruit these kids. I mean, they're not kids anymore, but re-recruit these two men that you had as kids at one point in time. And mm-hmm. he sort of still has to be so. In addition to gatekeeping the secrets. And trying to be welcoming to um, to both Aaron and Justin, he also has to put on the sales pitch to some degree to encourage right. them to to find out the answers, you know, mm-hmm. find out why this picture, you know, why this picture fell from the sky in front of Aaron. Why? Um, uh, where did where did where did Justin find the, his picture? Was it like in? It was in the lake, wasn't it? In the tackle box well, in the lake. He, he found the oh. tape in the lake, but there was like a picture of the of the, yeah. of the buoy. Yeah, I think it was like on like somewhere like in the woods or something. He found right. It, if I'm not I, yeah, he found it on his run. It just like appeared in his, in his on the ground. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he found it on his run after like the trailer almost gets flipped and like the something moves through the woods. Um, something huge moves moves through the woods. Um, so like he kind of has to do the sales pitch thing too to like you know like I'm trying to keep them here. I'm trying to mm-hmm. you know welcome them back into our family, and then. And then when sort of when Justin and Aaron do sort of break down some of the, uh, you know, and get to some of the more interesting information about like what actually is going on, when they go back to Hal, he just has like theories for them about like what's watching them. Why can't they see it? What is it doing? What does it want? And it's like he's giving these theories without like frightening the shit out of them. (laughs) It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, and without really getting into too much detail. So 
the character of Hal has to do so much in every scene that he's in, and man, Tate Ellington really pulls it off without like without overacting, without underacting, without like you know what I mean. It's just a very it's a tough job, but he does the job really, really well. Yeah, and I mean, you get to see him go through like a variety of different situations, and even when he has to confront Justin about the um, the stuff, the comments that he made about the group, the commune, mm-hmm. like I'm just like, okay, is something really? Is this where we're going to see like the craziness? But it wasn't there. You know, we never really got the um, the real overt and kind of in your face crazy spout from like the cult leader crazy spout that you usually get and stuff. Like right. this was almost like a, like a reverse kind of take on um, what I usually, what I usually see from these type of characters and stuff. And like, you're just looking at him and the whole time. It's like, you know, this guy could be responsible for like some really like he could be responsible for like a suicide thing, you know, just mm-hmm. when are we going to find out this information? And then like the story just kind of unfolds from there and stuff. It does a really great job. Yeah, he, he really does. And, and then you find out like, once we get to the very end, we find out that, you know, how, I get like when you really look back at it at no point in time was Hal lying. He's right. He's not lying. And in fact, he like everyone else is a fucking prisoner. So mm-hmm. he just has he just has come to more readily accept. Um and so is everyone else in the commune. They've readily accepted their fates. And right. you know as as is evidence when when the ascension finally happens, they're there standing waiting for it. Like arms up yeah. ready to go. That's right. Exactly. And like, do you think that like the way that they so like, how do you think like the first and the, the was the first incision like an actual like suit like them willingly go to kill themselves? Or did you think that they all like died in some crazy calamity, which got them stuck in the time loop? Because at some point in time, they would have had to have been like a technically like a suicide cult in order to get into this loop. Right. I, that's a it's a really good question. And I, I always think about this. The, the way that people talk about, like, and I, the key to this is the um, the girl that plays Lizzie, um, Kira Powell's character, Lizzie, um, the one from the mental ward. Yeah. She yeah. talks about how she just wandered down at some point in time. So my guess is that people either wander in and they just get stuck or like Aaron and Justin, they're called back. Okay, I gotcha. So okay. it's probably and like when you and when you think about like all the characters and the things like the things that they do, you have uh, Shane who's a magician, um, mm-hmm. Anna who does all the clo- you know does like their designs their clothing and stuff. I maybe I'm reading too far into it, but it feels like that's something they did in their past lives. And okay. So they weren't necessarily a part of the cult, but it's something brought them there, and then they got stuck, obviously. I gotcha. And dude, I loved the magician scene between Shane and Justin and the baseball and him, Mm -hmm. Justin, like lying about the card. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, you're not going to impress me and stuff. Just being like being how somebody would be in that kind of situation. I have been I haven't been that guy with a magic trick, but I believe me, I haven't laughed at a couple of jokes because I'm just like, fuck this asshole, you know, (laughs) so like so like um. But um, the scene with the baseball when he threw it up in the air, I thought that was, I thought that was a really good scene between the two of them. It's, it was it was a really great scene, and again, one of those like such a it's not even an effect. They just had someone hold a baseball like a, on a ladder and then mm-hmm. drop it into Justin Benson's hand. <laughs> like it's not right. even an effect, but like it's it, you want to talk about something that's super effective. That that trick and that conversation was really effective. Yeah, exactly. Like that is one of those deals where like you're just. Little things to maximize the most out of your situation. Yep, yep. Uh, and since you segued nicely into this, how about how about a standout moment from each movie? And we'll just keep going in order here. Um, your standout moment from Resolution. 
Okay, so the end where they look up at whatever they're seeing, and it's like they see a shadow. You know, you see a shadow come over them and mm-hmm. stuff. And like, I just did, like I didn't expect it. it. It totally took me by surprise. Like, I thought that was such a great like unexpected moment in the movie. Like, I you know, I just okay. So like, the house burns down, and like, I don't, I have no idea. Like, okay, so like here they are, they're watching a burnt house. But then there was just that one little thing at the end that just opened up the door for like so many questions. And I mean, there's like, there's a lot of stuff in resolution, like that they, you know, like when we talk about bookends where it almost feels like they wrote it with the intention of revisiting it later on, like um, Mike's encounter with, you know, Justin and Aaron and stuff Mm -hmm. like that on his walk and everything. Um, Even like his wife and stuff like that in the beginning, like, you know, I felt that that was written for a future resolution Mm -hmm. and, um, just this, you know, you obviously know that there is some type of supernatural element going on. It's clear as day. And like always in these movies, like I want to see it, you know, I totally want to fucking see it. Or if it is even in it, if it's something that can be seen. And then in the end where they're looking up at what is this colossal massive figure and stuff that just, I thought it was great. That was my standout from the first one. Yeah. I, I, I'm going essentially the same route. Um, as you, I, I just called it the last 15 minutes where okay. the entity essentially takes over the narrative and mm-hmm. pushes them to, to find things. Um, like when the, when the fucking hatch goes flying off like that bunker and mm-hmm. just like, you know, the, the CD appears in between them in his car and right. all of these, like all of these things that sort of, that were hinted at and now they're just sort of coming in like a, a big wave all at right. once. And it's just like essentially telling them that like, no. You can't do this. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do this. Um, mm-hmm. It just, it's a, it's a really, it, it's, it's really, it's like, like I said, it was just sort of like we're getting the breadcrumbs and then all of a sudden those breadcrumbs lead us to this huge, you know, huge crescendo and this huge finish where we get the, the entity, whatever it is, you know, looming over them, you know, basically as like the final warning that like, no, you can't do this. We're starting over. And yeah. And, and obviously, like I said, there's breadcrumbs throughout, but I, I really especially loved in this last 15 minutes or so, there's the um, the portion where we get the light leak of the film, um, mm-hmm. where the film jumps and you have like the splash of light to suggest that like, you know, it's a camera malfunction. And right. so for us, the viewer, like if if you're not like, in, you know, and Mike notices it um, for us, the viewer, though, that's one of those things that like suggests that. And I I know that you'll take this the right way and hopefully everyone else out there takes this the right way. It's that we're watching that story the entire time. It's, yeah. it's more than a movie. We're watching the film, but we're watching the film of this real situation. It sounds stupid, but Chubby, you know what I mean. Can you possibly better explain that? They Wes Craven's new nightmare did. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's it's a it's a me- it's a it, it's a moment that suggests that we're watching a meta film. Yeah, exactly. Yes. In the mouth of madness. They in the mouth of madness said. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, but I'm with you here. That, that was awesome. I, I think, uh, I think runner up though, um, in ter- in resolution runner up is that conversation that Mike has with Byron in his camper. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the French guy, that's just like one of those, I'm yes. like, it's eerie and unsettling and I'm waiting for something to happen. And the way it's shot with like the mirrors, it's, that's like one of those things that I'm like, please other horror movies take note of these types of interactions because they really help build tension. Right. And in any other type of horror movie, that guy is going to go to the bathroom and come back with a chainsaw and like try to get at him and stuff like that. Right. Like that was one of those, like, 
it was very, very deep, but also like very, very simplistic kind of conversations. Like he's talking about very, very like, you know, sophisticated type things, but he's also kind of like explaining it in this way that I thought was very, very easy to grasp. And it like, it just, it took away all the clouds of, um, all like the kind of sciencey type, you know, technical clouds mm-hmm. and really like got us, got me to see exactly like the core of what was going on. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, how about Synchronic, uh, okay. standout moment? All right, dude, this is actually a lot different approach than um, what I went with Resolution. Okay. And my standout moment here, it's the conversation that uh, Steve and Dennis have towards the end in Act 3 when they're walking through the um, this kind of just like neighborhood in New Orleans. Like they're splitting like a fifth of Jack Daniels or whatever, yeah. like one of those little bottles. And dude, Jamie Doran, Dennis says – the real tragedy about meeting the love of your life is that it's behind you. And that was one of those lines of dialogue where I literally looked up from taking notes and said, fuck you to the television because lines that good shouldn't be in movies like that. And it really like number one, then like what followed it is, was just this just amazing, like kind of like monologue and conversation that followed. And it really made me, that's the line that really made me notice like the evolution of the dialogue between the three movies. And I'm not saying that, believe me, they did not top out at, um, in Synchronic. Like there's a lot of really, really great dialogue that goes into the endless, but mm-hmm. this one like kind of moment, especially that line, cause it's just, it's like so good. And it's like, so like, you know, like pessimistic, but like beautiful, like all at the same time, like it's positively pessimistic. If that's even like a way, if that's even a phrase, but like, um, so I just it made me realize that like um, these guys like and the, the writers and stuff like just really like did a great job with these types of conversations between the two like main characters and stuff. And these types of conversations give us just a little bit more than like, hey, these dudes work together. These guys were friends in high school. Like it's almost kind of the way that how I said the dialogue was very tr- immature and resolution. Um, overall, yes, but throughout the course of the movie, it matured very, very much. So by the time we're at the third act, like the dialogue was at the most sophisticated it's ever going to be. Whereas resolution, like this just happens to be the most sophisticated dialogue exchange in a movie that is a little bit better written in terms of the dialogue than its predecessor in this trilogy. So this um, exchange that they had was the like was kind of the light bulb going off where the di- where I really started to take a note of the evolution of the dialogue in this movie. And I also think that it's the best fucking line in the movie. And that is the best fucking line for anybody to write. I, I, I love, I love the approach you took there. I really do. That's, that's a really, I, I think that like, obviously like, obviously like the, the time travel stuff and some of the deaths and things and, and the, the injuries and accidents that, that happened because of synchronic are interesting. But I do think that, like, the best moments from Synchronic are these conversations between Steve mm-hmm. and Dennis, by far. Be it in the strip club, in the back of the in the back of the ambulance, you know, where, wherever it happens to be. Like, that these are the best conversations. Or these are the best moments. And I love that you, I love that you took, like, that sort of, that sort of, you're right, that's a really, really good line. And thank goodness that line is delivered by Jamie Dornan. Um, it's right. just, like... You, you know, like again, it has nothing to do with the quality of actors in any of these other movies. It's just there is just something different when an A-list actor delivers them. Um, right, it just comes out differently. Um, even if Jamie Dornan was, you know, trying to his his American accent is so flat. 
Um, <laughs> it's so flat, but I mean, it's fine. It just, it's just, it's so flat. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I, I was, I was on the same wavelength with you here because like my favorite moment is when, again, Jamie Dornan does, it fills in the character and the nihilism of Steve for us when he tells the story about his 30th birthday and yeah. finding his family's graves that got washed up because of a flood and how, you know, his, like, especially his little sister's um, coffin was looted and stuff was taken out right. of it. And it's like one of those, it's one of those, and he, you know, he mentions it, he's like, I almost passed out. And Steve was like helping me. And Steve was like getting through this without any, any issue. And mm-hmm. it was, it's one of those kind of, you know, that conversation between, uh, uh, between Jamie Jordan and Katie Asselton is what, three minutes, two and a half minutes, three minutes, something yeah. like that. But like, that in, that that informed a lifetime of what hap- was happening in Steve's life. Yeah, exactly. Like that is one of those. Okay, this whole thing with like I am so detached from New Orleans and Louisiana and stuff like that. It's just like in general, like you know, being from Ohio, then here in California, I've never been to New Orleans and stuff. But there is just like it's just got such a rich history and stuff. And when he's going about this story, like this is completely, completely believable to me. Like oh, this it, isn't like, this, I, this, I guarantee this thing, they pulled this from, pulled this from a Newsweek article or something. This probably uh, Chema, this, if you, any, any place where there's a big river, if there is mm-hmm. an old cemetery next to it, shit gets pull, pulled out of, uh, pulled out of that cemetery all the time. I guarantee it's I happening believe- along the Ohio. Oh yeah. You may. Yeah, definitely. You're right. The, the rivers and stuff. Definitely. And like, I guess the way that they bring this, situation which like you know it's not something that i've heard of every single day it's a very believable situation that i just i haven't heard it's not like regularly in the news that this stuff happens not like an every month thing so like just it was one of these what i felt was a a unique way to um get a unique situation that is has a, a a tragic element but it also has this like kind of beautiful moment with the friends uh kind of coming together and this like a, a reversal where Steve is the one comforting uh, Dennis and stuff. So like, it's one of these, um, there's a lot going on in that mm-hmm. particular scene is what I'm trying to say. And a yeah. lot of it um, was executed very, very well. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. But it, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, however, if I did it to pick a runner up there for this one, uh, the time travel experiments were, they were the kind of trippy shit that I was expecting. Um, mm-hmm. after, you know, Synchronic obviously came out after Resolution of the Endless. Synchronic was the, the last one that I saw in terms of my personal chronological order. And when Steve started to do the time travel experiments, I was just like, oh, this is dead on with what their kind of visual style is. Like, it just feels, yeah. feels right at home. Um, and even, I, I know, it, going back to that conversation in Resolution where Byron talks about, like, he can see through the membranes into, into different realities and different times. And mm-hmm. that's almost it almost felt like when they were designing um, what the time travel would look like, it almost felt yeah. like they were like, take Byron's conversation and that's how we're going to do it. Yeah, because that, that's exactly right. It's like it is exactly what it is, a membrane sort of melting away and different membranes because you takes you two different periods of time. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Uh, so how about your standout moment from The Endless? I have a feeling we're going to have uh- the same one. Okay, like uh, for me, I loved the bringing it back to resolution, and when Mike sets the cabin on fire and mm-hmm. kind of resets that whole that whole story and stuff to actually 
see that happen in the movie that that was my standout moment like i i figured just from like imdb that we would run like obviously i knew it from looking at imdb that we would run into these guys again but i wasn't exactly sure how it was going to be and like when um the when we met mike's wife who is in the commune I was like, I was just like, okay, I'm like, we're, he's so he's, they're probably like out here walking around. Like, I just, like, I knew we were going to see it. But then to number one, see those dudes, but in like, you know, in like further in time where like the cabin's got a fridge now and like, you know, they're obviously mm-hmm. like some type of example of these guys making a life out here. And then he burns everything down and then it just like resets automatically to that initial meeting moment of resolution. Mm-hmm. I love that. It was, it, it's fantastic. Sorry, were you done there? I am done. Oh, yes. okay, okay. That was oddly enough. That was actually my runner-up, but I'll, I'll, okay. I'll talk about it here because it's yeah, it, it's it's so it's so it's so simply brilliant. Um, like even though you kind of know it's coming, especially if you've seen if you haven't seen Resolution prior, then like it you know then it doesn't really like matter. Um, but mm-hmm. having seen Resolution prior, you kind of know that it's coming. It's setting up for it anyway. But like the way that they do it is it's it's very clever because we're actually not we're not meeting them in the exact same way we're seeing them at some kind of progression like you said like there's the cabin's a little bit different in the interior um how about how about sitting down with chris and having a conversation and chris imparting words of wisdom like right. the yeah. characters have actually progressed on their own and have, have matured and evolved on their own um mm-hmm. and sort of and sort of since I mentioned as a, as a trilogy connection here, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later, um, sort of the thing that keeps them going is the fact that they're friends. Like, it's, yeah. it's this really clever way of reintroducing this char- of these characters uh, from, our, from our first part of the trilogy and just giving them just enough time to get a little bit more exposition and explanation for possibly what's going on and then to sort of... I guess you don't really close their loop, um, but just sort of, like put it reframe it for everyone that like this has been ongoing now for them for at least 10 years Mm -hmm. that's right yeah you bet and like so are they i guess this is the one thing that always confuses me about that so like when that restarts are they going to then relive the exact same thing until they burn the house down again to like reset it from the beginning because they're never getting out of that right it's like a continuous thing over and over again that's the idea is that they're never getting out of it like the um the the guy from who looks like he's probably from like sometime in the late nineteenth century, who's on mm-hmm. the what five second loop, yeah, um, that's right, and, yes. and then somehow gets we don't really see it, but gets gruesomely killed uh, over and over again, right? The, I guess the suggestion is that there isn't a way out, like okay, like you know there you can try to figure things out, but there isn't a way out. Um, but like my guess is, the way it's presented because there are changes in both the characters and like what's going on inside the cabin and like how much they know is that mm-hmm. they're getting presented... Like, oh, like, when when Mike finds the hard drive. And okay. he brings it in, and, like, he kind of says, like, well, this this footage could be from our past or our future. It doesn't really matter. My guess is, as they try different things, there's different clues each time. Okay, I gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I'm, like... When it comes to the time loop stuff, that is just always like a question that I have. Like you know, Groundhog Day, it's it's a little more just reliving the same day over right, and over because again because he's conscious the entire time. Like he never loses the day. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. And like these types of situations, it's um it's a little bit different, you know. And like with Groundhog Day, the whole thing is just this asshole becoming a good person 
you know, a very simple like kind of story arc or whatever that would thus lead him out of the Groundhog Day thing where it's not as obvious as how it is in Groundhog Day. For me personally, it just I become a little muddled and I'm not going to lie. Sure. I have a tendency of like focusing on some of the wrong things. When no, it I, I, I get stuff. you. I, I, I took it as like when I first when I first saw the endless and like we finally get to like the conclusion of what's going on. Um, that the key was uh, was Hal's equation that there this is something that he's been he's talked about how long he's been working on it that he's never going to get to an answer and that to me that suggests that everyone who's stuck in these like time loops they're never going to get out because there okay. isn't an answer gotcha okay i gotcha cool no thank you for clearing that up for yeah. sure uh but uh, but from the endless my top moment was the struggle um i i felt like this was oh really, yes yeah yeah i felt that like was this great. was again a super simple way to to sort of paint paint this sort of supernatural horror or this Lovecraftian horror story that's happening. Um, we're just going to go make it look like a rope is being suspended like up in a tree or as uh, as Justin suggests that it's uh, what was it Creepy Dave? Is that what they call him? Creepy Dave on yeah. a ladder. Yes. Creepy Dave on a ladder. That it's it's this guy with brain damage is up in the ladder just pulling back. And it's, you know, obviously we see that it's not because Creepy Dave is back in the, uh, you know, is back in the uh, the gallery of people watching as our protagonists pull this rope from an unseen force or try to. And when it gets completely ripped out of Justin's hands, um, you know, the person who is sort of the not willing to believe or not willing to buy into the system, um, how like violently it gets ripped out of his hands and pulls him to the ground. It's it's one of those moments that like you're you're just sort of like, oh, shit. Like there mm -hmm. is something more going on here. And I love, and beyond that, I love the way it's shot. It's just a rope going out into blackness. There's right. nothing for you to focus on other than like what's happening to the characters as they, as they, you know, as they go through the struggle. Um, it's just one of those things that makes it that much more eerie and that much more otherworldly when you're just, when you don't see what's happening on the other end. Yeah. That was like, for me, that was like the first indication that like something could actually like, this whole thing could be like one of these crazy death cults and stuff. Cause before that, they just look like everything's so happy. They're drinking gulsh, you know, mm -hmm. like everybody looks young and hot or whatever. Like, and then this was my first, like, okay, there is definitely something like a way next level, like going on here with this. And it, you're right. Just a very simple shot. This rope that like, you know, descended into darkness and everything. And like they made the point that they were trying to make with Aaron, who is the guy who was successful and Justin, who you know was violently ripped to the ground and had bleeding and stuff like that. You know, they present their statement was um, was made there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The statement that um, sort of the belief and acceptance is like the only way that like you're going to is the only path forward, basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you've yeah, that's like the, the challenge is more about believing than it is about pulling a rope. Yeah. So uh, Chemba, would you, would you order these movies differently or not? I wouldn't. Um, like I, even though like, um, the endless and resolution clearly are the two that are the most in like identifiably in the same universe and mm -hmm. everything, um, and then you actually find out that they go to the same places and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that it is better suited as a third movie 
because I was watching, um, I had no choice but to watch the clip from uh, Jamie Kennedy in Scream 3 explaining some of the rules of the trilogy and stuff. <laughs> and and this is the one that, like, you know, follows those rules to the T about bringing something back from the past and finding out what you thought about the past was completely untrue, as we learned this with this in um, The Endless and stuff. So the thing about having, like, Synchronic in the middle especially if we're talking about being this whole, like the red flower trilogy, like if there was ever a, I guess like the, if you're ever going to do a movie that just kind of casually referenced this red flower, and then we're going to move on, it's going to be the second one. Like, this, mm-hmm. it, like it always feels like this, this with like trilogies in general is that the second one, it, it, not, this isn't necessarily like a conversation of strengths or weakness, but the second one I think is, is sort it's like it's kind of like more detached from the first one than the third one is. Like that's just kind of how I feel about trilogies in general. Yeah, I got you. So, I, I understand totally what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, it's like I know like and there are a thousand examples out there where I could be where I could be proven wrong and be happily proven wrong, but I just feel that like out of trilogies in general. The second one is a little bit more disconnected, and the third one, you always kind of harp back to the first one in the third installment, like all the time. So that's why I would not reorder these at all. It, it, yeah, and you know, in your if, when you go back to your very basic, very basic storytelling structure, the the third the third act is the one that's going to have all of the answers and resolutions to the problems that popped up in the first act. So mm-hmm. just naturally in a, in a movie trilogy, that's sort of what you're looking. That's usually how they're going to be formatted. You're right. There are yeah. definite, there are definite exceptions to this rule, but like, I feel like, I feel like we lay out in the first movie, we lay out sort of some of the ground rules and some of the ideas in the second movie. We're going to take this, one of these ideas and show like what happens when this idea is set loose in some place where it doesn't belong. And in the third movie, we're going to go back to where it all started from and we're going to close up that story um, and we're to, we're to close up those loops, basically, in the third movie. Yeah, the, and the third movie gave us that closure that we, de- you know, the closure from the first one and stuff. Like, that, that doing its job in the role of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. All right, Chama, let's move on now to the trilogy connections and get a little bit deeper into, um, into what I saw. And then I have some questions that are mostly for you, um, for the most part, uh, since I'm going to explain a lot of this anyway. Um, but as I mentioned before, the, the three, I think the, besides the obvious connection of having the same directing duo, um, I think the, there are three really strong ties. And as I mentioned before, cinematography, the difficulty of the friendships and the dispatches from beyond. So let's circle back here and start with the cinematography. So I, I find this to be the strongest tie between all the films. Um, Mm -hmm. the, all of these movies have. Even even though even though synchronic takes place in a different takes place in a different setting altogether, there's still some there's still a very unique and familiar there's still a very unique look that's familiar to all of them, where where the way that uh, that Moorhead shoots the cities and shoots the, the landscapes uh, in East County is that like it feels even though something feels familiar about it everything looks alien. Um, there's just an unnatural appearance to New Orleans. There's an unnatural mm-hmm. appearance to these hills out in San Diego County. Like, it's hard to put your finger on it exactly. But, like, especially when we get these long shots of, of New Orleans and some of the drone shots of New Orleans and some of the drone shots in The Endless 
and just some of the not as much in resolution but it, they're still there everything that they're all the places that they are and like the places that they're going they don't look like places on earth even though they are even though I have right. reference point for what fucking New Orleans looks like, something about it still looks very different behind behind the lens of Moorhead. Are you feeling that same thing? I definitely understand. Like me personally, I've never seen New Orleans. Like I, what you're saying here, um, I, I understand what you're saying. I wish I had a little bit more to contribute in terms of like the New Orleans element of the conversation. But like, and when it comes to the whole like San Diego stuff, like. There are, I could like, I even forgot that that was in California, you know, and like, mm-hmm. I know that there, there are an overabundance of uh, reservations and everything like that and tribal lands out here. But it like for a second, the, the, that particular location, it just seemed to be like one of the least like California parts of the, of the movie and stuff, you know, like when he's driving out to it and like when Mike, um, you know, is in his car and he's not in the, the cabin and stuff. And you could see like the mountains and stuff behind him. Like that was like all California and then some, but when you get to the, the cabin and this, this little piece of property around it, it almost seems like they stuck like, like Oklahoma. And I only go back to that because of the reservation dogs connection, mm-hmm. but it just seems like that's what they stuck in the middle of California. It didn't look very California at all. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was absolutely, it, it just, it's something that looks out of place about it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. In, in resolution of the endless, um, there's a lot of there's a very dreamlike quality to the cinematography too, especially when we get uh, a heavy focus on the sky. Um, that's that's just something that they do in, in all of these movies. Um, just specifically thinking about um, in the endless where we get these like long shots of the birds kind of forming certain formations. Um, we get uh, we get the um, we get the shot uh, above Ali Ioannidis when she's sitting on the rock um, that sort of looks before we get the conversation about the record. Um, and synchronic being the needle on the record, we get this cloud formation that looks like a that looks like a record, um, mm-hmm. like a circular cloud formation that has like different ripples to it. And there's a lot of that kind of stuff that like pops up in 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 all of these movies where we're sort of really doing these long focusing shots in the sky to sort of. And I think this is I think this is a big part of this. Uh, Moorhead's doing that to sort of make everything around the characters feel really big and make the characters okay. look really small. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, I can kind of see that. Sort of, sort of in a way to, and I think it serves. There's, there's no indication of this in Synchronic, but obviously it's the 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 one of the cores of Resolution and the Endless. I think that he's doing that because we're supposed to sort of see this almost from the POV of whatever the entity is. <clears throat> so okay. we're we're doing we're making our characters look small. We're making this big landscape. Because that's how the entity controlling everything would see it. No, th- that makes all the sense in the world to me. Yeah, you bet. Like th- those people are going to seem a lot smaller to this massive entity, to call it, to say the least. This entity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what else to call it. They don't give it a name. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, but like it's it's just it's one of those things, and like and it gets reinforced with dialogue um, about like you know the goings on of like the, of the certain places and certain things. The and the resolution again, we have that conversation with Byron where he talks about the certain energies and the things that are going on, and we get these like long big shots of the landscape. And it is sort of just very suggestive that like there is look at all of this. There's so much more going on here than you know about. And that even mm-hmm. even the characters in this movie know about and that we're even gonna be able to present. And I, that's how I kind of felt like the cinematography was telling that story throughout all these movies. 
Yeah, no, I can definitely understand where you're going with this for sure. And that it, that basically leans into their point that they're trying to make, that there is more shit going on there than what meets the eye. Yeah. So uh, what did you notice about the way the various films were shot? Okay, so like, um, so I'd said before this whole like Shit's Creek comparison and stuff. And yeah. The Endless, Endless and Resolution um, are my, this is like my go-to for this part of our discussion here. So when we're talking about um, broadcast networks and stuff and the way their products look. My personal opinion is I feel Fox has like the creme de la creme of how shows are supposed to look. It feel, it looks really good. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like I'm in a movie, like everything, the way that they do their cinematography and everything I think is top notch. Yeah, they, they do look real quickly. They do look very cinematic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know what I said? Everything about it. It just feels like the best. It feels like the best visual presentation of a product um, in terms of the way it's shot. NBC is a close second. You know what I'm saying? Like that's just basically because the third one is CBS, which is God awful, where everything looks like it's got like a, a halo of light over it and stuff. It almost doesn't even look like actual reality when you're watching CBS shows. <laughs> right. So like the way that this um was shot in the cinematography, it kind of reminds me of like Schitt's Creek because it's like, it's not Fox. It's not like that gold standard of the way that this is shot, but it's like better than CBS, you know? So like where resolution and the endless are in terms of like the, the actual, like the way it looks, I feel it's like a couple of degrees back from like Schitt's Creek and stuff. And then I'm going to reinforce this Schitt's Creek point by making this point about how like muted everything seemed Mm -hmm. to look to me like there wasn't any real there wasn't any real flash you know like and when you look at Schitt's Creek like you know I don't even know if like the sun really shines in that show you know everything just kind of has this certain not flashy look to it and even like David's outfits and stuff David's never really in like anything ultra colorful he's just in something that's like stylized a little bit more trendy, like mm-hmm. a bigger neck hole or like one short sleeve, one long sleeve, yeah, you know, yeah. but everything he wears is pretty much black and white or not really but vibrant and flashy. Nobody really wears vibrant and flashy clothes on the show. The only chance that we really see any real color are when you're in like the diner or maybe like um, a big elaborate scene, like in the theater or something like that. There's just not that much going on in terms of these vibrant, colorful shots. So I know that like Schitt's Creek, there's probably way better examples. Schitt's Creek was like the first thing that kind of came to my mind. And like, I could see this cabin like kind of being in Schitt's Creek, you know, like if they were ever wanted to make a commentary about uh, crackheads or something like that, this cabin situation like would easily be like the crackhead cabin in, in Schitt's Creek and stuff. So it may be just, maybe just this whole like um, non-populated area kind of, um, setting that that helps me make the connection, but there is just something about like this this mutedness and the simplicity of the way that it's shot that I find could find some parallels between that and the way Shit's Creek is shot. It's it's an interesting comparison that I don't I don't at all disagree with, um, and I think I I for I think a big part of that is just budgetary concerns, um, like like the reason. Yeah. The, I mean, Resolution was made on a tiny, tiny-ass budget. Like, there is, like, no money spent on that film. And the reason, in The Endless, the reason why you hear The House of the Rising Sun all the time is because mm-hmm. it's it's a, a song that is in public domain. 
so it doesn't cost you any money to use it. Um, <laughs> that's, I mean, literally the only reason why. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, so like, yeah, I, I just, I think it's probably you can attribute about probably 90% of that to just the cost of versus what Synchronic looks like. And even though it's, mm-hmm. it's still an indie film, it's clearly many steps above um, production value in what Resolution and The Endless were. Um, I mean, when you're, I'm assuming that like, if you were like, you wouldn't be able to on a, I want to say the endless was like an $82,000 budget or something. Um, that like, you're, you're not going to get Jamie Dorn and, and Anthony Mackey to sign up for that. So, oh, no, no. So like, you can just see the physical, you can see the difference in what was going on, um, in, in those two movies versus synchronic. But like, yeah, I think it's, it's mostly a budgetary concern, but I do, I do think that there is something to sort of, to sort of keeping it a little bit more muted, it doesn't make it feel like a stylized horror movie where where we're going to see like body parts and like blood everywhere and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, right. It does make it feel more like something that you would just see, if that makes yeah. sense. It, it's just, it's not, it's not, we're not mistaking this for a fucking Saw movie, basically. <laughs> right. Like the way that it's shot, I think, grounds it in a certain level of realism where. I guess, like, if you're willing to take a leap of faith with your beliefs, like, it is, it could easily be said that this could easily be happening right now. That there's, mm-hmm. like, a part of San Diego County that's stuck in a time loop. Actually, you hit it on the way to San Diego. It's called Orange County. The whole thing is stuck in the 50s. So, like, Boots. the, um, <laughs> yep, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, there's my, there's my shot of uh, taking a shot on Orange County for the month. Anyway, on to the next thing. So, like, that, that's what I'm saying is that, like, it's um it really does help ground this into a certain level of realism like it's yeah. not so stylized to the point where like you know what you're watching like the realism kind of helps sucks you in yeah yeah it's not a it's not a michael bay movie where right, right. everything is bright as fuck and like just vibrant and like a little bit over the top or or uh who who else did that tony scott had like oversaturated movies that was like a tony yeah. scott touch uh, the the late the late gray tony scott had a lot of like very vibrant colors in all of his movies that were sometimes it was like overwhelming. So yeah, it's like, this is like the exact opposite. Right. Exactly. Um, so any, did you get any like feelings evoked from the way, the the way the movies were shot? So dude, like there was a certain level of emptiness that I felt. And like, this just goes back to reinforce like some of the things that I was saying about the mutedness, like, and, and like the lack of like a lot of stuff going on in these shots. Like a lot of these, you know, were, conversations with one to maybe three characters at the most between um, Zach Carlin's gang and um, the, uh, the, the, the UFO people, Justin and Aaron in the woods. Those were like, that's like four people is like the most you're ever like seeing on screen at the mm-hmm. same time. And like the way that they have now, I know that it's like a small cabin and everything, nothing in it. There's like a mattress and like, you know, maybe like a table or something. Mm-hmm. And I thought for even, this being such an enclosed space, they like they just like they they suck the life out of it. It's entirely empty, and you could actually see like they're this like spatial like kind of differentiate different spatial distance between the two characters that seem to be rather great at times for such a small space. Mm-hmm. And like even like when they go um, outside of the the cabin and stuff, like you know Mike just goes to meet Byron in the you know one guy you know one solitary mobile home on top of a massive landscape you know just like one thing kind of filling in an otherwise empty space when mike goes to see um you know the charles at the casino and stuff like that it's just it's an empty parking lot 
one guy coming up in a security shirt that I'm sure they bought for ten dollars and everything mm-hmm. like that. And I, I'm even I wouldn't even be I would go out on a limb here and say that the security van that pulls up at the end of that shot was probably there to tell them to leave the property. It could have <laughs> so been, like, yeah, it could have been. So, so like there was just you know because there wasn't all that much going on in these shots. I just felt like there was a lot of emptiness there. And that may be something that not the main point, but one element that they were trying to express. I, yeah, especially, especially with, um, I really got that, especially with, uh, synchronic, actually the way that new Orleans was shot. Like you already kind of mentioned how like they're in the very, which makes sense. They're EMTs. They're going to be in some violent, terrible situations. And those terrible situations are taking place in generally really run down, uh, parts of cities and the way that they the way that they shoot these parts of the cities it does feel it does feel like like when we're first we first see them rolling up on the on the stabbing victim and the way they kind of got to they got to walk down the street <clears throat> excuse me they got to walk down the street because the driver got the wrong address mm-hmm. uh, or got the address like one of the numbers trans transposed um like we're just getting the lighting on the street for the most part and so it feels like they're walking down this almost like a tunnel and like you right. can't really see anything else. And I, yeah. I, I got that feeling a lot in Synchronic. And it's, it's a, again, it's kind of an amazing feat that they pulled off because they did film that in New Orleans and they still made it seem big and empty. Yeah, I mean, like that park scene, like, you know, they're at a park and stuff like that. And like they made that park look is across the street from a city skyline. But there was just still so all this emptiness there. I don't know mm-hmm. if it was the gray skies or like the fact that they chose one of those parks that like to me kind of reminded me of like a um, a park you would see like on the east side of Cleveland on the lake, like not Whiskey Island, but like the other right. side of, of yeah. the lake, like that little park that's over there. Mm-hmm. So like they, they picked like the right locations for that. The, the amusement park that they went to was like run down and shit like that. So, I mean, there was just this, this emptiness there. And this was like something that I thought was like apparent in all three movies. Yeah, absolutely. And then you, and then uh, you know, I won't beat this dead horse much longer. But like when we get to when we get to the endless, and they're they're wandering, um, you know, they're trying to like wander back to, um, I guess, wander to safety. Um, the way that like they're sort of shot against like these like big open areas, just mm-hmm. gives you the gives you the you know the, the gives you the obvious impression of how alone they are, and how you know how remote this area actually is. Of course, definitely. Um, and I left this, I left this question very open because I, I didn't want to like put too much, I want to, I didn't want to like lead you too much any, in any particular direction, but with the cinematography, what did you think they were going for? Okay. Maybe so you, I, maybe I, you I think, answered that a little bit, but if you want to expound. I, I, I think with the emptiness, you're going for something that's on the family tree of emptiness, which is being trapped. And it's mm. like, these are sort of on in the same neighborhood of one another going for like a little bit more of a, a movie friendly um, situation with being trapped. And like when they, when you think about it, like uh, these guys are kind of trapped in their situ, you know, they're trapped in their situation for at least five days only to then become ultimately trapped in their situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony Mackie um, is going against the uh, idea of being trapped in time and stuff. And he finds himself, he finds himself there, you know, like for at, at the end and everything. And then um, uh, you got a little bit of some of the trapping when stuff goes wrong, when he has to take the second pill to get back and we lose Hawking and everything. The like saddest mm. part of the whole movie. Yeah, it was. So like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, man, it's like he's got to go back for the dog. Right. And then like the dog shows up and I was like, oh, he made it. And it's like, no, he didn't make it, which was a really good job of foreshadowing the last like uh, about 
minute and a half of the mm-hmm. movie in the last shot. But um, so this whole, like, I think feeling trapped kind of came with the territory of this emptiness um, that I was feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you on there. I, I think, I think, I, I think they're, I think in general, um, cause you, I, you get this in, I would hi by the way, I would highly recommend spring. Um, if you want to, if you want to cap off the East County, uh, cinematic universe, um, mm. I would highly recommend spring. I, I think they, that pops up in spring too. The way, okay. um, the way that, especially with the, with the lead female character, um, played by Nadia Hilker, who is, what is she on right now? Uh, she's like, she's been on the walking dead for like the past like four seasons. Um, okay. but, um, especially with the way they shoot, they shoot Nadia Hilker is that like, she is very much, she's very much alone in this reality that she's created for herself. And that's, that's all I'll say about that. Like it becomes very apparent that like the weird shit's happening in this movie. Like I said, it's, it's a, it's a body horror movie. Um, Mm -hmm. but like the way they shoot her is usually from long distances and she's like by herself, like walking down walkways and hallways and things. Um, like, it, it makes her she's like the a lot of times she's the only person in frame yeah i gotcha yeah definitely yeah um so there we go that's wraps up the cinematography discussion here and let's get into uh more of a theme here let's talk about the difficulty of friendships uh chema i and again i got some questions for you but i, I have some stuff to chip in here as well but the way i saw this one is that what they're saying very flatly is that friendships aren't easy and mm-hmm. And that's like not a big newsflash to anyone out there. Friendships aren't easy, especially as you get older and as, a, as an adult. Um, friendships aren't easy. And I think what they're really getting at here is that the sort of the the presence of some kind of imbalance makes them even more difficult. So like yeah. when we, we think about the friendships here, Mike is successful and thriving. Chris mm-hmm. is a junkie and he's pushing himself towards an overdose death. Um, right. In Synchronic, Dennis seems to have a good life, but he's envious of Steve's relative freedom, or what he thinks is freedom. Um, right. In The Endless, we have Justin, who's very committed to keeping Aaron away from his cult, and you know, trying to build like a real life. And even though they're brothers, Aaron, or Justin really has to act more as a parent than a brother. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. all of these all of these friendships, and obviously Justin and Aaron, it's, it's a blood relationship, but it's a friendship, too. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there are a lot of things that can spoil a friendship, uh, you know, is what they're kind of laying out here. And it takes compromise from both parties to sort of repair that friendship. But I think it's really what they're saying. It's really incumbent upon the person who has sort of got the perceived power to make the biggest compromise. And I think Mike makes the biggest compromise. Steve makes the biggest compromise. Justin makes the biggest compromise. The people mm-hmm. that you would sort of go... They're the ones that have the better, not better. They're the ones that have more power in this dynamic. Are the ones yeah. that have to go the farthest to bend over and and help their friend out. Yeah, with great power comes great compromise. Yes, that is a, like you're hitting that right on the head there. And like those people have to make the compromises because they have like more to lose, I guess. Yeah. And you know, like with um, you know, Chris um doesn't have to he doesn't have to make any compromise no like not at all you know like he is the one who has who's like in the position that he is in because somebody else is giving up everything to help them you know mm-hmm. and even the concessions that 
Mike makes throughout the course of the week and stuff like that. This was like a multi-day event and everything. Like he had made compromises a thousand times over, whether it's with Chris or like the world around him and stuff or his world that he left back in LA or whatever. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, there's a ton of compromises being made mainly because those people have the most power there in the position to make the compromise. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, it takes, it takes to the end of the movie and it's obviously foreshadowed with the, like the opening quotes uh, and the endless about the, the brother's, uh, or the fa- you know family not um, admitting admitting things until they're on their deathbed, um, mm-hmm. but it literally takes to the end of the movie when they're possibly about to be swallowed up by the entity for Justin to just go, whatever you want, man. Like I, I'm 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 here to do I'm here to listen to you and do what you want. Right. And it takes literally them almost dying to get to that point, but nonetheless they get to that point. Like it it like it's a, it's incumbent upon Justin who clearly is the i don't want to say controlling but the person the person like as you put it the person with the most to lose and the person with like the most who's the most put together even though in justin and aaron's case they're both poor and struggling he's still the most put together so he's the one who has to do all the comp or most of the compromising that's exactly right he's the more of the leader and everything like that he's the guy who's I guess, responsible for taking Aaron out of the cult and stuff. So he is going to be in the position to make them the more compromises. And he does. He's like, you know, it was supposed to be a one day trip. Then it turns Mm -hmm. into a a multi-day trip. Then, hey, by the way, like maybe we should come back for good, you know, and then Mm -hmm. even entertains the idea of that and stuff. So he's in he's in the position to make them the most compromise, which like it really I, I believe this to be really realistic. Like there's there's something about the way that they portray these compromises that I think rings true to like the real world and stuff. And if we were, you know, if two people like, you know, my neighbor and his wife or my neighbor and his best friend were in the exact same situation as uh, Justin and Aaron, I feel that there is going to naturally be a Justin that is either already there or that evolves out of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would totally agree. It just, you know, just happens to be a, a, a cult being controlled by a mysterious entity and, and, potentially watching them from space but yes that that right. sort of no i mean like you're, you're dead on like there is there's there is always that sort of person who has to really do quite a bit of quite a bit more work to make things work if that makes sense yeah exactly that's exactly right uh and then if we want to tie a bow in this real quick well steve's got to go sacrifice himself to yeah to, right. to, to level their right. to level their friendship dynamic so no that's true yeah definitely um so what similarities do all these relationships have from movie to movie like anything that, that particular stands out to you okay so you you hit really well on the imbalance and i'll piggyback off that by saying that this like there's like an addiction element with all of these relationships mm-hmm. in all three movies and with with um mike and chris in resolution it's right there from the beginning he's going there for that um steve has got this like they don't play it up like full-on alcoholism but there's definitely He's like a close. booze thing going on there yeah i mean it's it's everything without working at best gyros and stuff like that you know i mean that's pretty much how um how close and how far they push it without actually like you know throwing him in an aa meeting and mm-hmm. stuff so his like struggle with the um the booze and everything like that is apparent and synchronic and then the addiction element 
is actually not with drugs in um, the endless. It's Aaron and the cult. Like he's, mm. you know, like addicted to that lifestyle. He wants to go back to it. He's like, he's not even there all that long. And you could already tell that like at some point in time, he's going to bring up staying there forever. Like the outside world was just not for him. Like, and he, like you may call it whatever you want, but at, at its core, like he is addicted to that lifestyle and stuff, you know, and that was the addiction that was apparent in mm-hmm. the endless. And, with the, within this, um, you know, the, the addiction part and stuff like that, like um, in the first and third movies, it's more of like something that I think kind of like propels the story forward, uh, like a little bit of a story engine to kind of complement some of the other like, you know, things that are moving the story in these movies. And like these people, like they believe, like as most addicts do, that if they get whatever they want, it's going to cure whatever pain that they that they have and stuff. And like whether it's Chris's. um you know, physical, like, Hey, I'm throwing up and stuff like Mm. that kind of pain or whether it's Aaron's like, you know, I'm just can't like the coping pain that he feels with adjusting to the new world. Like these people follow like a very, very, um, straight up like addiction kind of format and stuff like that. Like these people play up the notion of addiction in their own unique way in each one of the three movies. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that. Actually, I didn't really think about it in that particular in those particular terms. But like now that you mention it, um, I mean, obviously, like Steve, like I said, Steve is like a one step away in that writer's room from from being a from being an AA. But um, but yeah, like I I like I like this angle on it because there is sort of sort of like the in like the way in Resolution and the Endless that we have this we have this kind of faceless shapeless entity there's an entity that is controlling to some degree their behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. It just happens to be addiction. That really is shaping a lot of the things that are happening on the interpersonal level. Yes. Yes, exactly. Definitely. I like that. That's really good. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to add to it. There's this really interesting element where the people that seem like they have it together are really, I mean, they have it together for the most part, but they sort of are, they have like a fatal flaw. So, mm-hmm. like, in, in Resolution, Mike admits to being sort of a narcissist for yeah. trying to go rescue Chris. That, like, right. this is sort of, like, almost like a passion project or something. That Exactly. Probably no one else, and he makes mention that no one else is coming to help him. And it's not just for the sake of helping his friend out. It is sort of to to help him kind of, you know, with his own, own, own like, personal flaws. Um, mm-hmm. Dennis, pretty much right at the top, admits that he doesn't like his life. Um, like right. those are amongst like his first like lines of dialogue about the things he doesn't like about his life. And like, it, it just sort of kind of takes off from there. But, um, you know, like that's, that's Dennis's fatal flaw. And obviously Steve has fatal flaws. They're just more obvious, um, mm-hmm. in, in synchronic. And then when you, when you get to, uh, when we get to the endless, Justin is on the straight and narrow and doing things the right way. I don't think this is a flaw necessarily, but he just can't, <clears throat> he just can't find a way to make things better. Like he, he promised Aaron that they, when they got out that like, you know, at least that's basically what Aaron kind of suggests that you, you basically told me that things would get better and they just haven't. And Justin can't for all his effort, can't make those things like happen despite the fact that he is kind of on the straight and narrow. So like all of these, Mm -hmm. all of these people that are sort of quote unquote put together. And I know there's like varying degrees of this. um, There is some sort of fatal flaw in all of them. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like with Mike and the addiction thing, like it's almost like it's more about with and not necessarily saying like, but with some of the people that do this kind of stuff, 
there are sometimes, not all the time, where it is more about them. Yes. Like they're getting something from this. Like they're, the other guy is getting sober, but it's not necessarily what he wants as Chris had threatened to sue him and basically do everything and then some to him throughout right. the course of the movie. But like when these type of characters that go do these kinds of things, there's always some type of like selfish type motive that it is masked by the fact that they're doing like a really, really good deed and everything. That's exactly right. And with, um, you're definitely hitting it uh, on the head with Dennis and stuff. And just like at times, just like almost like wanting to hear stories about like Anthony Mackie and these girls and this freedom and Mm -hmm. this lifestyle that like, you know, he would be living if he, if he didn't opt for the, the route of going and getting married and everything, and then birthing the, um, a dark haired version of Eliza Cuthbert and all that stuff. So <laughs> she, like, Ali Ioannidis <laughs> really does look like dark haired Eliza yeah. Cuthbert. <laughs> like I, th- I thought that's who it was for a second, yeah. <laughs> but like, so, and then with, um, this whole thing with Steve and, and, um, sorry, with Aaron and Justin, the, uh, this right here is like classic. And, um, I, you know, that, like, you know, the whole thing about you, like, it's not said, but like, I personally get this feeling even from the beginning that you're aware that like this, obviously like leaving the cult was all Justin's idea. And just like, you know, this guy like doing everything humanly possible to try to make it better, but it's just like not landing, you mm-hmm. know, and it's, and with him, it's almost like the inverse of Mike where like, you know, there's, the selfishness element was like, I think Justin convincing Aaron to leave. But once we got outside of the cult, I think it is the selfishness walks away because it's like, now you're, now you've done it, you know, and you've made this bed now lie in it. And I think that like, at least in my own personal opinion would be like, if that the situation, like if I was to pick like myself and put myself in that situation, that's how it would be like now I have this person they came with me on this journey the selfishness is gone and now it's like I have to put the focus on them yeah yes 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 After, I like I like how you put it like an inverse the uh, that that relationship's like almost directly inverse to Chris and Mike um yeah and and you can even you can even add to like sort of the selfish nature of it because Hal calls Justin out like mm-hmm. about all the lies that he told to the right. to the press that essentially painted them. What, do, what does he say? We're, we're dickless UFO worshippers or something? Yeah, castrated UFO worshippers yeah. are all castrated. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, he basically like points out, he's like, you fucking lied. And, you know, like you, you really did something really shitty to us. And it's really hard to go sell our beer. Like when people think that we're out mm-hmm. here, you know, trying to like conv- convince people to commit suicide. And, right. you know, and like, you're like, you're right. Justin sort of made that bed and he's got a lie in it. But like, he is sort of he is from that selfishness now trying to make live up to that promise and he just can't do it. Yeah. And I mean, you get, you get some of the, um, their relationship and the taste of that in like the first like five minutes where he's basically telling him that like, yeah, they were going to kill themselves. And Aaron, even being this adult guy, just like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's almost like he hasn't accepted the fact that when your parents say they're taking your dog to a farm up upstate or whatever, that that's not really, he almost believes that that's where, that there's a dog upstate that used to be his, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, I'll tell you, that's one thing that sort of, that sort of doesn't land and it's not like it's a big deal. Um, Aaron and Justin are supposed to be much younger. Than mm-hmm. they than Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead actually are like yeah like they're supposed to be more like early twenties and okay. 
them both being our age really does it doesn't like it doesn't being our age and also they both look older like mm-hmm. i'm guessing there's especially justin benson i'm assuming there's no point in justin benson's life where he looks like a child yeah that's right yeah even like even him as the younger guy in resolution didn't look anything nope. like um he looked like oh my god he looked like one of the guys from kids in the hall like kevin McHale or something he looked exactly like yeah. that guy to me yeah exactly it just it he's He's just one of those, he's one of those, I, I mean, like, he's an actor, he's in things, but I mean, he's, obviously he's not, I'm not going to call him, he's not necessarily an actor, even though he's in this movie, but he reminds me of one of those actors, like someone like a John Hamm, who, mm-hmm. he, John Hamm talks about this all the time, like, or, I've, I've heard him on various things talking about it, where, like, he missed out on all those, like, youth parts, because at yeah. no point did John Hamm look 15. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good point. There's no way in hell that that dude ever looked young. He's probably buying cigarettes at 10. Right, exactly. But uh, but anyway, anyway, uh, get back on track here. Um, so why do you think Benson and Moorhead are using horror and sci-fi as their template to tell, to tell these stories about friendship? Okay, I think there's two reasons. Um, the first reason is, is that with horror and sci-fi, these two, these two genres, um, they allow for the most creativity i think to tell the story if this was like a drama like the royal tannenbaums or an insert any family uh, movie here i think you, you know you the family drama type movie you're 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 basically very very limited with what you can kind of do and in terms of like real creative stuff you know like the royal tannenbaums like eulogy like these movies kind of like obviously it's a wes anderson voice which is very very unique but it's almost like these situations are just uh, it's almost like a glorified version of like wh- like a family Thanksgiving dinner gone wrong in the aftermath of it. You know, there's no supernatural elements. You can't really like you can't really have, I guess, fun with the situation and stuff that you could in a horror sci fi movie. And then the other thing is because of this, because of you're less restricted, this is really gives you the opportunity to put this relationship and these characters to the test because the supernatural elements are obviously greater than them, which poses a much greater test than, uh, let's say, Margot Tannenbaum coping with the fact that Mm -hmm. she's adopted or whatever, you know? So, like, I, I think that these genres in general offer a lot more room to tell maybe not necessarily a better story, but at least, like, a more entertaining one. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I completely agree with you, and I actually kind of had something for something similar to that second point you made, that because of like because you can sort of tell a very, um, you can tell like a very extreme or maybe even a bizarre kind of story, you can put these friendships like through a crucible, and like mm-hmm. you know like through an extreme test, and through that extreme test, you know the the bonds of the friendship it either breaks or in the case of all these movies, that Bond comes out stronger on the other side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Like that being the, the test element, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what relationship was most interesting to you? For me, it's the Justin and Aaron relationship. I, I Even from the beginning, when I was reading the Wikipedia summary for um, The Endless, this was something that I knew that I was going to like really, really enjoy. And I am kind of infatuated, though. I don't really want to devote a lot of time to reading books and watching documentaries, but I am very, very fascinated with this dynamic of people like leaving the, the cult and not necessarily 
how they adapt on the outside, but like the relationship between them and how Justin seemed to, even after 10 years of not being there, seemed to be very level-headed and Aaron seemed to still harp on, like I said, the, the dog going to a farm upstate type stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, it raises so many questions as to like how one person can, could have views that I agree with when I think that he's level-headed. Cause like, honestly, like when I see that stuff now, I'm just like, yeah, suicide death call. I don't care if they're farming or whatever. Like people living in the woods together are a fucking like cult in some way, shape mm-hmm. or form in, in, in my mind, you know? So like I view Justin as the level-headed one. And, um, I like, I guess just kind of like he, they did such a great job with, this um, kind of conflict and dynamic between the two characters that I could like really feel like that guy. Like there were times where I'm just like, man, if I was in this position, I probably would have clocked that fucking guy, you know, like, mm-hmm. and then made a comp like, I'd probably knock him out and then say like, yeah, we could stay here one more day, you know? Cause it's just like, they see, he seems to capture this level headedness in this world of not level headedness that, um, that worked really, really, really well. And I think that's what made it um, the most intriguing um, couple out of the three movies. I, I'm I'm with you here on this one, and I'm not going to add too much to it because that was pretty that was really well said. Um, so I'm with you on Justin and Aaron, and I'll just add to it that like I, I'll just add to it that this is the most their relationship is rooted in the most simultaneously the most fantastical elements. Um, you know, like the 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 thing that they have to kind of come back to face down is very fantastical, but at the same time you can kind of when we see the. <clears throat> When we see their life back in presumably San Diego, um, you can kind of relate with two people, be they friends, be they brothers, whatever, two people who are struggling badly mm-hmm. and sort of needing to find something to, you know, needing something to grasp onto besides what's in their like daily lives. So like it, yeah. it goes from their relationship goes is like simultaneously the most rooted in reality and also fantasy at the same time. Yeah, yeah, you bet. There's a really good balance of the two of those. And, like, I think that the fantasy element is a great reinforcer to some of the real-world stuff that goes on. You know, it's just a cool, not not reinforcer, but a cool, like, addition to have and makes it a little bit more, like, um, fun and intriguing to participate in as a viewer. Yeah, absolutely. They get, um, they get, uh, as as we, you know, as they discover their past and, like, what's actually going on and, and they you know, either strengthen, well, obviously they strengthen their friendship. Um, you just get, it kind of adds an element of, um, of just discovering more interesting stuff along the way, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. All right. Let's get to the last one here. I'm calling this dispatches from beyond. And this is what I mean by this. Um, all of these movies in the trilogy involve communication that exceeds the laws of physics. Um, mm-hmm. The entity in Resolution and the Endless uh, uses analog electronics to send messages. They get tapes, um, CDs. They get they get to look at film reels. Uh, various points in times, things just turn on for them. Um, right. Obviously, we get a little bit in Resolution. We get uh, the computer turning on and showing them a potential future. But nonetheless, basically all analog sort of communication. Um even even in synchronic, we get the message on the rock. The always message on the rock comes through uh, is the result of a time loop. But also, what do you think about it? The objects that get brought back um, from those partial time travel situations are sort of unintentional pieces of communication that are telling a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, dude. Yeah, yeah the so- everything, totally. Yeah. So, um, so safe to assume 
the way that it portrayed like the supernatural communication was uh, probably again one of those budgetary necessities. Uh, would you say that's fair? Oh, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the fact that like you could pro- if people didn't have a lot of that stuff just like lying around in a garage, like some of that antiquated technology, like. That's not going to be like the most expensive, you know, they didn't like deck out the house with like uh, multiple flat screen TVs and everything like that. And um, the fact that these messages were like, you know, it was on the simpler side and everything. I believe that this all fits into like a budgetary constraint for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I felt the same way. But again, it's one of those things that like, despite that budgetary constraint, I think it tells a better story than if then again, like if. I'm thinking of this in like in a more in a more like modern setting. Like if this was like on like a TV screen or on like whatever, it would just feel it wouldn't feel as spooky. Basically, yeah, it just wouldn't feel right. This, wouldn't have the same creepiness to it. No, no, definitely not. Like the um, I guess like a television, like a flat screen coming on just randomly doesn't have the same kind of punch as a film reel showing you your fate or finding a videotape. You know, there's something about these older antiquated products, which I guess like we kind of safely assume will not work because we're so into the future and then they do work and then they deliver this like cryptic, this cryptic kind of element to the movie. Right. I was, and actually I was just going to bring that up. Like when you, you brought up a lot of good stuff there. Um, you just assume that like you're going to find this old like beat up film reel or like this projector that doesn't look like it should work. And instead the projector just turns itself on and begins Mm -hmm. showing you slides of your inevitable death. Um, or the overexposed pictures of people hanging themselves that are like, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's something about that just looks creepier than, um, than if we had seen it on like a computer screen. However, when they do use the computer screen, what a fucking clever use of like their own editing equipment to just go ahead and show us a scene that they shot and, you know, and, and present that as a potential future. Like, so even when it does come into some, a more modern sort of, uh, you know, using more modern technology, it's used like very perfectly. Um, mm-hmm. what I, what I really loved about this and, uh, maybe you'll, I think you'll agree with this, the visual in the, in the endless, when they finally go into the shed, when Tim lets them into the, into the shed, Mm-hmm. And they walk in and you have it. It also is one of those things that tells a very just the visual of it tells a very specific story. Um, we see all of the film reels and tapes and all the things that are stored. And, you know, as at this point in time in the movie, we, we realize that like these are being kept by the entity. Um, all this is being recorded and saved on something. And you just see the stacks upon stacks upon stacks of these film reels and tapes and you realize, like, and some of them are actually dated with, like, 1945 and 1936 on them or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. That's when you realize that, like, seeing, like, the physical, the like, the mountain of this stuff sort of stuffed into one place gives you, like, the gives you like the, the impression without, like, really going too far into it that, like, this has been going on for a long time. And who knows the ex- exact extent of what's been going on here. Like, it's this is only right. one piece of the puzzle. Yeah, exactly. Like all those film reels can contain different things. There's probably like crazier stories and stuff on there. There's a lot of implication by just showing a room full of film reels is where I'm going with this. Yep. And it doesn't have this, it has a little bit more of effect than someone handing you a thumb drive. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> so. you bet. It definitely a way more of a cinematic effect um, than just here. Here's the flash drive. Like we've seen 40 million times in the last right. 10 years. Right. Uh, so 
so obviously, I don't think I need to ask you this question. Did you like that sort of kind of twist to how the how communication works? Oh yeah, I thought this was a great like a great little twist that totally fits like what they were doing in the movie and stuff yeah. for sure. Yeah, I liked it too, and I even I even liked how it takes us all the way to the end in Synchronic before we realize that Steve is the one who wrote Always on the Rock. That's right. That's right. Yes, you bet. Yeah, I love that. Like, I'm kind of a sucker for that kind of stuff, you know, like just something being there written on rocks and everything like that. Like we have a lot of uh, shit that's carved in different things out here in L.A. And like I have just different things like that is going to stand the test of time. I'm yeah. a sucker for that stuff. Yeah. Quick, quick question here. And maybe maybe I just saw this differently. But in Synchronic, there's a I, I, it's the scene where Hawking gets lost in time. Um, okay. We earlier in the in the movie we see there's a carving um, outside on Steve's tree, it, and mm-hmm. it's like a big heart, and there's like it's like A plus J or something, and then there's something else underneath it. And yeah. am I mistaken that when he comes back after he loses Hawking, that the bottom carving is then gone? Cool. You might be right on that. Like I'm having a, I'm having a tough time remembering that specific. I know like what you're talking about with the tree and I could see, I just can't see the bottom part. Like for some reason, I'm kind of fogging on that. I I had to go back and watch it again, but I I feel almost positive that I I caught that the second time that that was a, that whatever he did and that going back to, I presume it was like the 1930s. It would be my guess. Um, and in, Mm -hmm. in that spot, um, whatever he did there resulted in whatever the bottom carving was not existing anymore. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah, I, I'm a little foggy on that one. You, everything you're saying sounds right. I just can't confirm it for sure. Okay, yeah. I mean, I can't either as we're sitting here anyway. So, But something I'll, I'll, I'll definitely check up on. But anyway, uh, get back to it. So what other, meeting, what other meaning do you think the prevalence of things like camcorders, uh, photographs, the film reels, slides, etc. takes on in each of these movies? Okay, like, I think that there is definitely, like, some very easy statement to be made about, like, us always being watched by, like, a a higher power. There's some, like, religious statement in there to be made. But I also think that, like, and this is just the Adam Chmielewski's personal one. This is, like, way out there. But I feel that there is some type of statement about life that's being made with them receiving these. Like, whether it's something, like, you a, a simple saying like you have the power to change your life like I, there's some kind of statement about life that i feel that these are making but i can't quite put my finger on it i feel it has to do with the power to make changes in your life whether it is a, whether you have it or whether you don't have it because a lot of these people are stuck in time loops but there's something about life that is to be made with these with these with this footage yeah, yeah, okay. I, I'm feeling you there. Uh, I'm feeling you there. Um, I also think, sort of, just to to go to backtrack to the beginning of what you were thinking there, um, that sort of we're being watched all the time, and obviously, in many case, in the case of very explicitly in the case of Resolution and the Endless, people are being watched, um, mm-hmm. and it's very. I, I think it's slightly implied that everything is being watched in Synchronic, though not mm-hmm. overtly implied. It, do you yeah. kind of you know what I mean? Yeah, there's like there's some kind of like there's some kind of thing going on there, but I can't quite figure out exactly what it is. There's a lot of overhead shots of space in the sky, um, kind of implying that we're looking up at something and something's looking back at us, in the same okay. way that they did it in the endless. So like I again, I don't think that's 
oh, I don't think that's necessarily exactly what they're trying to communicate, but you know, the the sort of like, I think that goes in line with the Danube, the noob Danube thing. It's not mm-hmm. it's not unintentional either. Okay, yeah, um, like. There are some really awesome overhead shots in these movies. Yes, like the yes. lake, the lake in the endless is fucking bang. Yes, it is awesome. Um, but anyway, where's where I was going to go with that? Um, we're being watched, like you said, we're being watched all the time, and sort of the, you know, sort of the the advent the advent of things like camp, like not even camcorders, just film reels and things like that. Sort of the new, the new all seeing eye, the new god um, for a lot of people, and so like the entity decides to communicate that way through a medium that has become so, um, you know, so ever present that like, we can't mistake that it's messages come like the fact that something like this is it, it, we know how it works. So it's unmistakable Mm -hmm. that a message is coming back through it when we see a possible future of our own life. Yeah. I got to tell you, man, you're you're hitting on something that really, really well about this video and this being like a new God and stuff. And that is definitely how it is. You know, like there's just, everybody's got a camera in their phone nowadays. Like, I mean, for all I fuck, I'm sitting here in this room. For all I know, somebody's been like just recording me for the last like couple hours. You know, I happen to do look pretty good today, but I'm not necessarily video recording worthy. But who the hell knows? People do weird shit. So, <laughs> like this this idea of like the um, the recorder and everything like that being the new god is completely on point because like you know, I put this the right way here, but like people get film doing stuff and they have to then like repent for some of the dumb shit that they oh, do yeah. that gets caught on camera, oh, yes. you know, as, the, as you would in a, in a civilian to God type relationship. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm, I totally, I'm totally picking up what you're putting down there. And I, I totally agree with it. Um, I'll, I'll add, I'll add something here too. Um, so we get a lot of shots of mirrors in each movie. Um, yeah. You know, spe- you know, thinking specifically of Byron and the camper, which was a great was a great scene with a great sh- great shooting on that one. Um, mm-hmm. Even in the strip club, uh, we have like that mirrored shot, um, and there's there's plenty more. Um, so, but that's like a, that is that's a horror movie trope and a half right there, right? Like right mirrors pop up in goddamn just about every horror horror franchise possible. However, so they kind of took so even though we get those kind of those kind of shots and scenes, I kind of feel like that they. Morehead and Benson thought of thought of uh, all the recording devices as their own mirrors, as their own version mm-hmm. of this that we're going to sort of manipulate. You know, instead of like showing the spooky ghost like behind someone in the mirror, even though like you know they're not in front of them, obviously, or you know they're not there, like that kind of deal. Um, they're still going to use these recording devices to sort of like show that a reflection, a, a version mm-hmm. of that reflection, and sort of um, you know show it to show it to us as sort of a warning. In the same way that you can, you know exactly what I'm talking about in horror movies. Something pops up in a mirror, they turn around, it's not there. Um, yeah. They're doing the exact same thing, but with film reels, slides, videotapes, um, even even CDs. The same idea. We're going to go ahead and make this reflection, but the reflection is going to be our version of a reflection. Yeah, no, that's really true. That's totally right. Because, like, in, the, um, in Resolution, the CD that was playing, like, it's weird. Like, you know, it's supposed to be... Mike and Chris getting killed, but the same dialogue is exchanged between Charles and the two methods and stuff like that. So yeah, that's a really, really good, I didn't think about it like that before, but you're right. There's definitely something to be said about like the mirrors and reflections through this use of the footage. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chema, we're at the end here. I don't have anything else. Do you have any final thoughts? Uh, anything else you want to mention about either the, any of these movies? 
like I really enjoyed all three of them. I thought the the first two were a really cool and I thought unique way to present a horror and sci-fi movie. It checks off, you know, a lot of things that are in the criteria for both of those genres and everything. And like, yeah, man, for I had heard of Synchronic, I hadn't heard of the first two, and for two movies that I had not heard of, for me to watch what is amounts to end up being five plus hours of movies in a night, it felt young and it felt great, and like I was just I was really, really hooked into it, you know, from from like moment number one, dude. This is a really really great um, trilogy to uh, to go with for for this month. I, I'm first off, I'm really glad you liked it. Um, these are. I, w- I would say um, Resolution and The Endless are like amongst my have now amongst my, fra- my amongst my favorite horror movies. Um, nothing wrong with Synchronic. I just think it it lags a little bit behind um, the things that the the other two movies are laying out. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, I, I in you know full disclosure, I would say that's the least horror of the horror movies. Um, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. certainly there are horror tropes there um, when we see these people getting fucking um, we see these people getting stabbed by time traveling pirates and um uh the the fucking dude falling down the elevator shaft who's actually the magician and the endless um mm-hmm. that's right that's yeah. right yep uh Shane Shane Brody or something or Shane Brady um like obviously like those are horror moments those are like grade A horror moments um and even like the way the movie shot there's a lot of like sort of there's a lot of a uh, there's a lot of they they shoot they shoot synchronic in the way you shoot you would shoot a lot of horror movies um mm-hmm. certainly the least horror of these ones though but uh, having said that, I like I said, I think that that sort of is an interesting sort of interesting sort of side story to where um, Resolution and, and The Endless end up. And obviously, finally, like I'm so fucking happy someone else has seen these movies now. Like, <laughs> like I've been sitting on some of these thoughts for like two years um, in, in terms mm-hmm. of these movies. But um, but like again, like I'm I'm kind of I'm intrigued by the fact that they've created their own cinematic universe on a budget that like amounts to i don't know the first 30 minutes of any marvel movie um right i mean in totality for all of their movies um i think that's pretty interesting and i just man i like it's one of those they have a movie coming out next year i think it's called somewhere in the dirt or something in the dirt um that's like gonna be high on my list and then also man they got really intrigued they're going to be part of the marvel universe uh next year they are really they're directing and writing uh six episodes of moon knight that's right that's right and moon knight is going to be oh god is that it's a hulu no it's going to be it'll be on disney plus it's on disney plus yeah okay yeah for some for some reason i was under this probably was true before the big merger and obviously the release of disney plus but i thought that was going to be a hulu disney show that they worked on together Oh right, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about that for sure, but yeah. So like the 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 people with the micro budget cinematic universe are going to be folded into the biggest cinematic universe um, <laughs> in existence. So I, I think that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I just oh I I love these movies and definitely check out Spring when you get a chance, Chema and everyone else out nice. there. You'll see you'll see exactly what I was you'll see exactly kind of what I was going to go for in the other proposed. Uh, female body horror trilogy, but again, kind of obtuse to not include women in it. <laughs> and and right. go ahead with that. Yeah. So, oh yeah, believe me, that's gonna. There will be 
a million people that listen to that podcast for all the wrong reasons. That's going to be the episode. That would have been the episode that broke us for all the wrong reasons. Yep. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> hey, these uh, two cis hetero males uh, are talking about ownership of women's bodies in, in media. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it, it's not good. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't have any other, any other final thoughts. Uh, oh, other last thought here. I like to imagine that uh, Byron who's played by Bill Oberst Jr., and he played the looter at the Anderson Chronic that points the gun mm-hmm. at Steve. Yeah. I, I like to imagine, and then we get the note on his camper that says he's gone to find his colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to imagine that in this through line that the the red flower that he was smoking in Resolution helped him time travel, and that's him in 1815. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah, that would actually be awesome. That would add a little bit of weight to the whole, like, to, to the red flower, a little bit of more yeah. weight to it and stuff. And not to mention, if drugs actually did that, whoo Yeah, no shit, Man. right? I, and it, and here's and here's why it kind of works out. Byron's French. Um, the, the battle that they go back to is the Battle of New Orleans in 1815 between the British yeah. and the French. That's right. Yeah, you bet. Definitely. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, wow. Throwing that out there. Yeah, and you know, I gotta say, I like that they also went with the this designer drug element because I think that that would like this. I know that designer drugs are probably going to be popular till you know till you and I are no longer on this earth. But it seems like they were really like really popular, and the bath salt thing was going around at the time this movie was made. Yeah, pretty so. much. You had, you had bath salts and what was the other one? Uh, kratom, 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 so, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't do them, so like these are the drugs I actually don't do. But I do real yes. drugs, kids. <laughs> I yeah. do real drugs. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. All right, Chum, I don't have anything else. Uh, do you want to lead us out of here? I definitely will. So everybody out there, thank you very much for tuning into the uh, the second installment of our Fright Fest trilogy, which um, we will wrap up with the third installment, which is going to be my trilogy coming up here for our next episode. So you better stay tuned for that. It's going to be a good one. And this is Adam Chemilewski and Matthew Pagel, the occasionalist signing off for today, and we will see you next time. Thank you.